Welcome to The Cinephiles. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California, by way of Los Angeles, California. Steve, network, what are your favorites? It is one of my all-time favorite films. And while I'm sad about the reason we're revisiting it, because yeah. we're honoring the great Ned Beatty this week, I think network gets better every year. <laughs> and, and I think when you think about where we were when we recorded this, this was pre-pandemic. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly the media and the craziness of network news and of 24-hour news made it an incredibly topical film when we recorded a few years ago. And, of course, we were so lucky to have Warren Olney as our guest yes, um, to give us real insight because he lived through the exact world of mm -hmm. network. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, what's weird about this is Ned Beatty is on screen for four minutes, yeah. five minutes. He absolutely not only dominates the movie but dominates peter finch in the scene oh yeah i know that he i think he got the part like two days before that's my memory <laughs> i mean well, i guess incredible. we'll have to listen to the episode to find out if that's right but something <laughs> like that and it's nominated for an academy award for this performance yeah yeah i mean and, and here's the thing uh is it less time than uh, i think it's less time than dame judy dench overall had in shakespeare in love and she won an oscar for it um, so, I mean, like to be only in a four minute scene, but it is better than any scene in the movie in terms of the, the things that are being said are on point and true and uncomfortably. So, um, and when you're watching the Bezos of the world, when you're watching now, what we've all this controversy around Bill Gates and the stuff that was going on behind the scenes with him and Melinda Gates. And so you go, you go and explore this thing. You see these people operate at a whole nother level. As you, as you hear about corporations not paying taxes at all, while all of us have to pay taxes up to our gills uh, in order to survive in this world, the corporations don't pay anything. So you see clearly that as much as we want to change the world and make a difference, corporations make it really hard for the little guy or this a little woman to to make a difference in this world, which is why movies are important that highlight the hypocrisy inherent in the American system, uh, but also inspire people to make changes like Norma Ray and what have you against those kinds of uh, companies or corporations that would seek to devalue you as a human being and turn you into what Orson Welles calls in The Third Man, a bunch of ants from a certain yeah. distance, you know? I think your point is so well taken. And, I, and, you know, I know that throughout the cinephiles, you and I have always tried to walk this fine line of not being too political. Yeah, and yeah. we have definitely fallen over that line <laughs> many, many, many times. Um, and certainly Network is a political film. But I think mm. what most people would agree with is that the media, the sources where we get our information, have a lot of power. Oh, yeah. You know, and that they are not necessarily motivated by altruistic motives. They're motivated by getting the ratings and getting the eyeballs. And yeah. I don't think that's even though it relates to a political statement, I don't think I'm taking one side or the other in mm -hmm. saying that, you know, mm -hmm. that and that thinking about 
that corporate power that is behind yeah. the network that just wants you to watch and how that changes who we are mm -hmm. and how often moral, totally morally bankrupt these, these places are, Yeah, you know, and this is the thing I know I said it when we did the episode, but like network was supposed to be a comedy. It was to some degree Whew. ridiculous and it ain't, you yeah. know, it's not that ridiculous at all. Yeah. It's really scarily real. And and you think about how much we folk like whatever the scandal happens, whatever it is. And in mm -hmm. this case, it's a guy, a network anchor who says, I'm going to blow my brains off in national TV. Mm -hmm. And and that becomes a scandal and everybody tunes in. And yeah. the same is true. I don't care if it's Harry and Meghan or it's whatever it is, oh. whatever is the latest thing. Our yeah. eyeballs are drawn to it like moths to a flame. Mm -hmm. And that becomes important. And then this guy starts to say, what is his truth? Mm -hmm. he, as he says, he got tired of all the bullshit, which is certainly true. He's had a lifetime spewing bullshit to a camera. And yeah. now he just comes out and says he's mad as hell and he's not going to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. And Again, I'm not going to point fingers or name names, but on both sides of the political equation, yeah. there are people who in one way or another said, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. And we're all mad and we all say yes. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a powerful, powerful thing. Yeah. And the truth is what um, Ned Beatty's character lays out here. Um, uh, was it Arthur Jensen? What he lays out here. Both sides of the political spectrum and anybody in the middle political spectrum uses that point of view to spark the conspiracy, right? To push the idea, right? We, we you know, it's the government or it's the corporations that are trying. Coca-Cola uh, doesn't want to support these voting rights. Well, we're not going to drink Coca-Cola anymore. We're not going to take it anymore. And the other side, it's, oh, look at Amazon and Jeff Bezos and how they're treating their workers and whatever. You know, my friend uh, Nick Mundy, he uh, posted a, uh, a New York Times article today, which is Amazon Prime Day, to, uh, to kind of highlight this homeless person and what they went through working for Amazon and said, okay, happy Amazon Prime Day to kind of put it out there, you know, from his point of view, the idea of how corporations can be, uh, can essentially be the big boogeyman in our world. And you look at the, I mean, the, the lines here, there, when he's talking real quick, uh, Arthur Jensen, he says, there is no America, there is no democracy. There was only IBM, ITT, ITT rather, and ATT, and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. And Steve, I believe that's the thing we all secretly fear is the actual truth. And this whole idea of stomping, or sorry, of uh, pounding our chests and, and waving our flags is all just. Uh, cosplay it's all just stuff that we've bought into to believe that uh have we have national pride but corporations don't care about national pride they just care about money and a lot of us work for these corporations sure. or put our work out uh on forums that are uh, bought by corporations or run by corporations uh and it's the horrible ugly truth of our lives so 
I have a question, and again, I'm not trying to make this. I, I literally have a question for people on the left and on the right, which mm. is based on a lot of what you just said, which is there are a couple of things that happen that I can't believe that anybody is comfortable with. And the first one is, and this just came out in ProPublica, the um, how much taxes the richest guys in the world yeah. are actually paying. and. Mm people like Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and Elon Musk and those kinds of people. And that frequently it's a few thousand dollars or zero. Yep. And these are people with literally hundred over a hundred billion dollars in wealth. Yep. Does anybody out here, and I don't care about your political persuasion, feel good about that. Does that mm -hmm. feel fair? Cause to yep. me, it's I can't imagine any argument that mm -hmm. said, now we can argue about how the tax code should be and what, who we wanted. There, there's also, there, there's all sorts of nuance within that discussion. But yeah. the fact that the richest people in the world are paying less taxes, John, than you and I, yep. that is fucked up. And I'm curious if there's anyone who can give me an argument the way it isn't. And here's the other one I want to bring up. Mm -hmm. Big corporations routinely give money to both sides in an election. Yes. That is just normal. And the only reason I can think of, and again, I'm I'm literally asking this question. Mm -hmm. If you could give me another reason, the only reason I can think of is they're buying influence. Yeah. Is that whoever wins, we want to make sure that we can make a phone call to them and they're going to pick up the phone. And so we're going to put $100,000 into the pack of mm -hmm. both sides. We don't care. How can, is, does anybody feel comfortable with that? Well, yeah, and that's the thing at the end of the day, when you look at it, if if corporations can contribute more than the regular working man or woman, then they logically expect an exchange and a return exactly. on their investment. It's business. Uh, now, one side is certainly feels like it's way it plays way more into helping the corporations than the other side. But that doesn't mean the other side isn't still influenced at some level by some of the corporations and the money that is involved. That's why I think it's uh, there's so much reform that needs to happen in the political process that removes corporations' ability to influence politicians. I wish we'd find a way to stop all that once and for all. And you look at something like Bernie Sanders, who is like you know taking these uh, you know uh, mom and pop donations, yeah. and that's what he's that should be what it's all about in politics. You know that's what it should be, not corporations buying. Uh, influence, unfortunately. Well, and, and again, in the uh, in the pursuit of being fair about it, you know who the other person, other than Bernie Sanders, who really took in most of their money from small donations? Yeah. Donald Trump. Yep. Yep. You know? True. True. Is, is so, so, like, I, obviously, it's no secret that I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, <laughs> but the fact that, you know, having people in politics who are not beholden to these big corporations, just mm -hmm. like, and to bring it back to network, having our news not being yeah. directly connected to the almighty dollar, it would be really nice. Like yeah. there is, there is a reason that people who watch the BBC, which is state funded, get better information than we get yeah. on our, on our news, which is not, you right. know? Right. Um, so, I, I, and the big one I think is in, in watching, listening to these ep episodes on network is think about how does this apply to the social media age? How does mm -hmm. this apply to the Twitter age? How does this apply to the rabbit holes you can go down on YouTube? Like, mm -hmm. is this getting better or is it getting worse? Yeah. Yeah. And are we, are we sliding away from the idea as, as we seek to be a more global world, are we setting up what Arthur Jensen without knowing it? Are we setting up what Arthur John, Arthur Jensen says near the end of his speech 
this idea that he wants to see uh, our children live in a perfect world in which there's no war, famine, oppression, or brutality, just one vast and ecumenical holding company from whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock, all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused, essentially world socialism to one company. Yep. Oof. Is there yep. nothing that gives you more chills than that? Well, I'll tell you. But well, the thing here's what gives me more chills, actually, in <laughs> yeah. a weird way, is the chaos we're in right now. Because we are the farthest thing from that. The we are not tranquilized. Yeah, yeah. we do not feel like we have a share of stock. Yeah, you know, we all are mad as hell and don't feel like we want to take it anymore. <laughs> I agree. No matter so, what side of the fence you're yeah. on, that's true. So I know in honoring Ned Beatty, we are releasing two long episodes of The Cinephiles in which only a very, very few minutes are focused <laughs> on this incredible performance. But the fact is, I think any time is a good time to revisit Network. And I, and I will say that on behalf of John on The Cinephiles, we are very proud, very, very proud to present Network with our special guest, Warren Olney, in honor of Ned Beatty. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephiles' new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, yeah, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! <laughs> Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Rocha. I'm a voiceover artist. 
host, writer, producer over at Collider, and uh, host of the, the new podcast, The Geek Buddies. It's out there for you to listen to, which Steve has become a massive fan of, and of course, the top 10 uh, that I do with Matt Nost. But uh, today is very, very special. Sure. And I'm so happy to be a co-host of the Cinephiles today. We are sitting in, I believe, the finest, classiest environment <laughs> that the Cinephiles has Certainly. ever Certainly. been lucky enough to record in, and that is because of our very special guest. Yeah. We are sitting in the studios of KCRW with Warren Olney, who's been a TV reporter for pretty much, or was a TV reporter and anchor on KCBS, KNBC, and KABC from 1966 to 1991. <laughs> that is a long time. Well, I didn't get to Los Angeles till 1972, but oh. I did begin in 1965, and and did it up until I got sick and tired of it in 1991. And then came the Rodney King uh, riots, as it's described, the riots, the civil disturbance, the uprising. And I've been doing public radio ever since. And that's why you're here in the public radio station, KCRW. That's right. And you've been doing uh, To The Point, which has been a show I've been listening to since I moved to Los Angeles, which is a show dealing with politics and the issues of the day. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I actually said your name, which means I did a terrible... Yes, did. Yes, I did? did? Oh, yeah. I did. But it I don't care. You can say it again. You it's buried right. the lead, but it's okay. <laughs> I need all the advertising I can, uh, I can uh, get. Well, then, once again, our guest is Warren Olney, and thank you very much for coming on The Cinephiles. Thanks for having me. And I had one question before we get started, which is, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, is that, and listen, since I listened to your show, is that in this world that we have that seems to have grown more uh, angry and intense and polarized, I was wondering if it is difficult or how exactly you maintain that center, objective, dispassionate voice that I've heard you for all these years. Is it difficult? Yes, it is. Um, But it's a matter of learning how to do the craft. And I don't don't use the word objective. I think fair is a much better word, not to uh, make reference to Fox News. But um, I don't think anybody's objective. I'm not objective. I have my own views about politics. I care about it a lot. I started, I grew up with a a Republican father and uh, married to a a very liberal Democratic wife. And so Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm all over the place. But uh, the idea, it seems to me, is to give everybody a voice, try to hear what they're saying, to understand as well as you can, the different points of view of people who are screaming at each other uh, in other venues, they're not going to do that on my program. That's that's just – and it's so good to have a voice like that in a place that we can turn uh, to your – which is still going as a podcast to, to the point to listen to this, you know, fair – really trying to be fair show. Well, it, I do try to be fair, and I also try to learn, and I try to listen, because I care about it, and I want to know what people think and why they think it. And sometimes I get people on who say things that are just outrageous to yeah. me. But my main response to that is, why the hell would you say that, you know, and why? how could you possibly come to a conclusion like that. That's getting easier and easier to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, well, the film we are talking about today relates directly to this point, which is uh, the film is Network by Patty Chayefsky. And this is one of the few times where a movie, the by credit normally in film, goes to the director. It's a film by Steven Spielberg. It's a film by Orson Welles, by Quentin Tarantino, by Stanley Kubrick. And in this case, that by credit, it says Network by Patty Chayefsky. And Patty Chayefsky is one of the great writers in the history of film, of theater, and of course of television, which is where he gets his start. 
Um, and so I just want to give a little bit of biographical information on him. He is the only person to have won three solo Academy Awards as a writer. There are other people that have won three, Woody Allen, Francis Ford Coppola, but they always wrote uh, one, some of them at least, with other people. Um, Patty served in World War II, which is where he got his nickname. <laughs> and I just found out the story of his nickname, which is hilarious, <laughs> which is he's trying to get out of KP during basic, and so he tells his uh, sergeant, that he has to go to mass. Now, Patty is a Jewish kid <laughs> from Russian Jewish immigrant parents who grew up in New York, and the sergeant didn't buy it at all, so he gave him an Irish nickname from that point forward, and that is Patty, <laughs> which I just love. Um, he came back home, and while he's working in his father's print shop, he started writing short stories, started writing radio plays, eventually moved on to TV, and his first show was for a TV show called Danger, and Danger was directed by Yul Brynner. Wow. Wow. Yeah, because Yul Brynner, before, directed? before he was the king, he was a well-known television director. And oh. his assistant was a young Sidney Lament. Wow. Yeah. And when he got the job as the king on Broadway, he said, Sidney, you're the only guy who knows anything. And Sidney Lumet took over being the main director uh, doing live television at the time and developed a close relationship with Patty Chayefsky. Hmm. Um uh, one of his radio plays was Marty, which was in 1953, yeah. and he had built into his contract that I get to write the screenplay for any movie that someone wants to make a screenplay of, which at that time had never happened. And we've talked about another one that came out of that, which was 12 Angry Men. One yeah. of our earliest shows also was a TV play that became a movie, and we talked about another one, which is Judgment of Nuremberg. Right. Three different TV plays from three of the great television writers of all time, all that got made into movies, and then... Um, and he comes to Hollywood. He writes Marty, um, and uh, becomes uh, which wins Best Picture. Which wins Best Picture. And Ernest Borgnine wins Best Actor. Which I haven't seen in a long time. Really, I remember it's it being the shortest really good. picture to ever win a Best Picture. Is it? Yeah, shortest time. It's like eighty-three minutes. It's not that long. And then it wins Best Picture. It was really surprising, but a fantastic performance. Economy is something that more and more producers, directors, and uh, writers ought to be thinking about. It seems to me a lot of <laughs> a lot of things are just too long. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, and uh, he also writes, starts writing for Broadway. Um, and then there's just one more thing about him I wanted to say, which is that he ended up in the early '80s in the hospital at the same time as Bob Fosse. Wow. Bob is in for open heart surgery. Patty's oh. in for chi for cancer. And they make a deal. And Patty says, listen, if you die first, I will deliver a stale, boring eulogy at your funeral. And if I die first, then you got to you got to dance at mine. <laughs> and on August 1st, 1981, Bob Fosse tap dances at Patty Chayefsky's wow. funeral. Wow. Died at 58. Wow. Wow. It's just amazing the uh, account you gave of all of these people and these very familiar names and the relationships between them that you yep. didn't know about. You know, you think of them as sort of separate entities. Hmm. But in fact, they're all working together in one way or another. Well, and that's the remarkable thing, particularly about Sidney Lumet, is it seems as if, because he wasn't a Hollywood guy, he lived in New York, his whole, he liked to shoot in New York, only shot one movie in Hollywood, that he made these close ties with this New York group of people yeah. that he kept his whole life. Hmm. Um, I'll give a little bit about pre-production. Uh, it started, the whole thing started when uh, a big corporation, I don't know which one, was com coming to buy out ABC. And that's what gives Patty the idea. And he immediately calls up Howard Godfrey, his producer, and he calls up Sidney Lumet and says, hey, would you want to do a movie about TV? And Sidney says, anytime you're ready to go, I'm ready to go. 
and it took about a year to write. Uh, Patty was buddies with John Chancellor at uh, NBC. Oh, wow. Yeah. I remember John Chancellor. Sure. And Sidney Lumet is buddies with Walter Cronkite at CBS. Wow. So the two not of them- Not bad were, connections. Yeah, not <laughs> bad at all. Well, and Walter Cronkite's <laughs> daughter is in network. Which she oh, has wow. one line. I know that. She is, we'll get to it, but yeah. in the scene with the great Amon Khan, when Lorraine Hobbs and all the lawyers are arguing about contracts, she is the Patty Hearst kind of character. <laughs> That's Walter Cronkite's daughter. So they finish the script. They have It's at UA. They have their first meeting there, and a VP of business affairs comes up to Patty and says, I have some problems with the Howard Beale character. Patty Chayefsky walks out of the room. <laughs> Um, <laughs> That's all it took. Yep, and he was able to get away with that. He just—it's from what I've heard—is like he—he he didn't mind notes. He didn't mind, you know, having conversations about things. But in uh, Howard Godfrey's word, he didn't like to get fucked with. <laughs> Who does? I mean, when the business affairs person comes up and says, "I got a problem with your main character," we're in trouble. Um, and that's just about all the pre-production I have, okay. um, except for one thing, uh, which is casting. Uh, the casting director is Juliet Taylor. She is one of the great casting directors of all time. Listen to some of these movies. The Exorcist, Taxi Driver, Close Encounters, Terms of Endearment, Killing Fields, Heartburn, Biloxi Blues, Sleep, Sleepless in Seattle, Schindler's List, The Birdcage, and just about every Woody Allen film of the last 40 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So when you look at this unbelievable cast they get for this movie, you got to look at Juliet Taylor. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason, you know, it's not, a, it's not a role that we talk about as much as we should, but there's a reason that good casts get put together. And, and you understand from all that you said uh, how, how much it's a, a joint effort to put together any kind of production, but particularly a movie, a film. It's, it it is, so much is involved. There is a reason my company's name is Team Effort Films. There you go. Yeah. Because that's what it's all about. It's so incredible, too, when you look at this cast, watching it right in 2019. This is a 1976 film. How much of these actors you remember seeing right. as the years go on and are still working today? It's phenomenal. Conchata Farrell, I couldn't believe Conchata Farrell was in this movie. Who's she in the, who's she? She's the, uh, she's the assistant to Faye Dunaway, the kind of larger oh, lady with the right. hair. Oh, yeah. That's Conchata Farrell. has been doing sitcoms for like 900 years. So I, I couldn't believe that she's in this in such well, a small Lance part. Lance Hendrickson shows up for like Lance Hendrickson. 30 seconds. Right. Um, I go to Three's Company, the guy who plays the director in the t in the booth who's angry that all this is going on with the mustache, that's Jack Tripper's wife's father. So it's just like, uh, it's like mind-blowing right. how well, many that's people That's where your memory yeah, is, exactly. really. I have pages of notes I would never have remembered. And they all have it on their resumes. Uh, yeah, right. I was oh, in, you bet. Yeah, right. That exactly. film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one more thing. They did three weeks of rehearsal for this movie, which was great for everybody. Mm except William Holden, who had never rehearsed in his entire career because he wasn't a theater actor. And lots of moves. Rehearsals, like some like directors like it, some don't. William Holden's a movie star. Yeah. He showed up on the set, he knew his lines, and he did his part. <laughs> so he didn't know what to do. And he said at the end of three weeks of rehearsal was the first time he felt like a real actor. Wow. Whoa. And he's in some great movies. Mm -hmm. And a great actor. A great actor. Even before <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. he thought of himself as a great actor. Lumet said an interesting thing about him, which was that he he says he ca you cast people for the third act, which means that you don't look at where they have to start out. You look at where they have to go. Right. And he looked at William Holden and said, he has sad eyes. Wow. Yeah. 
Um, I love Sidney Lumet, by the way. He's one of my favorite directors. He's, you know, we have we talked about all these angry, demanding, difficult, irascible, complicated directors. Lumet is down to earth. He's calm. He's kind. He's efficient. He plans ahead. He knows what he's doing. When they bring the DP on, the DP says, uh, looks at the script and goes, okay, I think we can maybe do this in 16 weeks. Lumet says, we're going to do it in 11. They did it in nine. That is a director who knows what he wants. Economy. Yep. Knows what he's doing and just shoots what he has to shoot. And and they lock picture five weeks after they finish shooting. It's not a lot of editing. Wow. No. Well, the script. You know, what is there to edit? I mean, if you get the lines right, that is, you don't have to change it. You don't have to mess with it. Well, and I looked at the original script, um, which I found, which is sort of fun because you could see the typewritten, you could see Patty's fingers, you know, that he hit this letter a little harder than that letter. And you could really feel it. He describes everything in detail. All It's all there in the script. Wow. It is pretty impressive. And Patty was on the set just about every single day, which, again, is very unusual for movies. Mm. Most of the time, they don't like writers on the set because right. writers mess with the directors. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you like to get into the film? Well, first, I'd like to find out when's the first time you saw oh, the that's film, right. which we I'm always sorry. do on this I've film. I totally that's forgot right. what our yeah. main questions. Warren, do you remember when you first saw this film? I certainly do. It was in 1976, as you said earlier, and uh, I happened to have been in television at the time, and I'd been in it for quite a long time. And when I first came to Los Angeles, um, well, when I first started out in 65, television news was, you know, relatively respectable. You don't ever want the journalism to be too respectable, but it was respectable. And it was covering what we refer to as news and, mean, you know, public affairs and holding public officials accountable for their actions and that sort of stuff, which was, it seemed to me, uh, the basic uh, reason for doing it. Channel 2, interestingly enough, was called KNXT at the time. I uh, had done a lot of uh, extraordinary production in the 60s, uh, which is now the subject of a Ph.D. thesis at uh, Yale Communications mm. School. As a matter of fact, they did, I don't know if this will make the final cut, but um, uh, Joe Saltzman, who's a producer worked with, who I worked with in 72, lucky enough to have him still at, uh, at the USC School of Journalism, uh, did a, a documentary called Black on Black in the mid-60s. It was the only first time that a network operation had done a major documentary with black people in it. Mm. It had only black people in it. That's remarkable. It was also without a narrator. It was uh, edited in such a way that uh, one wasn't necessarily very advanced. Having, having edited time. documentaries, that's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, he did another one called Junior High School. Mm-hmm. And similar, and a look at the junior high schools. It was anyway. I wanted to come to Los Angeles because I was still new. In the business, I wanted to learn how to tell stories with pictures and sound, which seemed to be what, was, what it was all about. I had been in Washington, so I came to KNXT. It had the reputation of being the best news place in the uh, news station in the country. First hour-long newscast, double the ratings of all the other stations combined at the time. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was a great place to be. So I started out here, as I say, in 1972. This is after having been in Sacramento for a while for the, their Sacramento Bureau. They had a bureau up there, mm. which was great for me. I got to learn about the state capitol. But um, when I came down, I was the political editor, and I did a lot of investigative reporting. I did some documentaries with Joe. They were hour-long features. And then things began to change. I really got there at sort of the last moments of the real halcyon days of television news. I was very, very lucky to arrive at the time. Literally the moment that this movie is talking about. That's right. That's exactly right. 
So in 1972, for example, I did an investigative report on a mortgage company that was advertising all over our station. Somehow, Joe and I found the uh, names and addresses of the happy couples that had been in the commercials, and we went to their homes, and I read to them what I had been shown, which was the small print in their contracts, which had all kinds of uh, deadlines and, right. fu- and mm. penalties and all Rate sorts changes of changes. And... The classic case was a woman in San Rafael who owned her house free and clear, a widow, borrowed a few dollars from uh, the union home loan, uh, and they ended up owning a house about, uh, I don't know, four or five years later, something like that. So anyway, these people on camera were going, you know, just overwhelmed when I would read them the, the uh, account. You know, what do you think about the the uh, company now? And you could hardly print their or run their their uh, responses without editing them. Hmm. So I was able to do that in 1972 right. and got away with it. And it cost the company, the station, a lot of money because they were a very heavy advertiser. Right. Very, very soon after that, a new management came in. The ratings had been going down a bit, and things began to change. And uh, new reporters came in, and they were involved, and they wanted to have what they called reporter involvement. And one of the examples of reporter involvement I remember very distinctly was when a new guy came in, and he went down to Marineland, uh, and he was up on a tower with a fish in his teeth, and as right. the orca jumped up out of the water, the uh, he dropped the fish into the orca's mouth, and they were doing that kind of stuff. So... In 1976, here comes this film. I'm looking at it, and I'm saying, that's exactly what's happening. (laughs) And I'm living through it in in my own career. I mean, it's funny, because in in, in looking about the reactions of people in television, it seemed to be, one, you're biting the hand that feeds you. How dare you? You you guys started in network television. How dare you do this? And... The other people saying, that's exactly right. That's right. Yeah. Well, and there was tremendous uh, controversy about it within the profession. Sure. As you're suggesting. And, you know, are we playing piano at the wrong kind of place? Yeah. Uh, or are we, you know, holding the line and uh, and uh, maintaining the standards that we know we're dedicated to uh, despite the commercialization right. and the entertainment uh, orientation that we're seeing yeah. now? John, you remember how you first saw it? Yeah. Um I want to comment on this real quick. This is starting to happen in the entertainment world as well. Studios are starting now to put the foot down harder on the necks of uh, outlets and uh, newspapers and magazines that report on the studios and what they're doing and how they go about their financial dealings, their businesses, and who they get aligned with and things of that nature. And if you start to criticize an actor or a director or a producer – you're starting to find that where before they would still have you give you access, they're starting to now limit access. Advertisers are now starting to say like, don't ins- don't say anything negative about this studio because we won't advertise with you if you don't. So you're hearing these kinds of things. I uh, just off the uh, off the I don't know what you would say off the table. I guess a, a reporter, uh, a friend of mine who's a, a reporter, talked to me about another reporter, another big organization who stepped away because his uh, boss came down to him and said, you can't write negative stuff about the studio anymore. And that's mind blowing to me because then at that point we're no longer journalism. At that point You're we're just essentially an advertising arm, right? We're state run TV for a for a for a uh, a studio or a production company, and that can't happen. And that's now happening at the home of the president and home and office of the president of the United States, Absolutely. where they are denying press credentials yes. now to longtime veteran reporters mm-hmm. in Washington. 
uh, who have been going in there for years because they don't like what they're running. Well, and coming up with hoops for them to jump through that they yeah. can't. Like you have to be there certain like nine days out of at twelve or something like. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and and what this is why one of the things, and I was going to say this at the end, but I'm going to say it right at the beginning is, I wish Patty Chayefsky was here today <laughs> because. <laughs> Having that voice to analyze, because what's happened today is things are so much more interconnected. Things are so much more corporately aligned. The messages that are being put out and the way they are being handled and Mm -hmm. algorithmed on social media and served out and programmed into our brains is so much more complex and devious than it was 40 years ago. One of the things that he was very interested in, it seems to me, and you see it in Hospital, which is another film he it's did that uh, you haven't mentioned, right. uh, is the dehumanization hmm. uh, that has gone on. And it seems to me that's exactly what you're uh, talking right. about when all of a sudden you've got uh, algorithms. Granted, they are programmed by somebody originally, but then they kind of go off on their own, yep. apparently. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, came into, I came to the film, to come back to the question, yeah. I came to the film uh, two years ago for the first time ever. I had always, it's one of those things where like I'd watched so many thousands and thousands of films, but this is the one that everyone said, you got to see Network. You gotta, and I'm a natural rebel. And so when people tell me to see something too much, <laughs> I resisted for as long as Good possible. And then on, uh, one day on TCM, I watched it. And I have to tell you, I was n- not floored by it. I was just like, oh, this felt like, oh, yeah, I've seen, yeah, of course, this makes sense. Watching it for the podcast this time, and I think because of the environment of our world now, as you mentioned uh, just a few seconds ago, Warren, uh, it became prescient and topical at the same time in a way that has never been, never was the first time I watched it. And I think the new HD remaster really helps it as well to get to see the real emotions that are going on so vividly within the actors. Because these speeches, these are this is essentially a film to play to a degree right. yeah. because there's such long uh, scenes well, in and one location. It's Shakespearean. In yes. The, the level of mm-hmm. erudition and the level of articulation yeah. of these actors in these huge, massive speeches. I don't know another movie that's like that. No, and the level of screaming. This is what my girlfriend eventually <laughs> couldn't handle anymore because she was just, she started for the first half an hour and then left the room. Is like, babes, how can they keep screaming for two hours? I go, it's a very passionate time in the 70s. 70s was a very passionate time. There's a lot going on. So, you know, so, but I, I thoroughly, thoroughly loved it watching it this time and understand why people were pushing me to see it for so long. So. Natural Rebel, you should be in the news business. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> He's working on it. Yeah, I am. I'm trying to break through. We'll see. All right. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know when I first saw it. I saw this so young, probably junior higher before on TV and then rented it and then rented it. And this is a movie I've watched over and over and over and over again. I This is a formative movie for me. The language, the the way the characters are framed, the, the poetry of the whole thing. I mean, like there's so many times, if you went through and looked through Steve Morris's screenplays over the years, mm-hmm. you would go like, oh yeah. That's where that came from. That's where that came from. It's so influential to me. And in particular, the idea that you can have discourse on extremely important and philosophical topics handled in this intellectual and brilliant way, but also have real human passion and characters and a tremendous amount of humor all at the same time. This is this is a really big one for me. And one more thing I should say before we get into this film is the other reason we're doing Network Today is because this is a request from one of our patrons. Simone Bouillard has one of the most interesting reasons for requesting a film in the history of the cinephiles. Here it is. Hi, Steve and John. This is Simone Bouillard. Uh, the reason why I chose Network is simply because I've never seen it before. 
and it's a movie that I can't wait to actually watch, uh, given that it's probably still uh, incredibly relevant today. So, well, that's it. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good day, guys. Okay, let's let's move into the movie. This story is about Howard Beale, who was the network news anchorman on UBS TV. We start with a narrator, and this is my first question: Why do you think Chayefsky chose to have this very almost storybook narration throughout this film? I suppose maybe he picked it up from television news, mm. oh, and sure. uh, uh, the, the, so often. Uh, we have the, or we used, we used to anyway, mm. uh, the, you know, the solemn anchor man on the uh, on the desk uh, explains the background, right. and uh, then introduces the story. Yeah, uh, and he's a totally different, totally removed character, and it, yes. it seems to me that as a viewer, it keeps you sort of back from the action for a moment, even though. As he describes at the very outset, uh, these guys are sitting down to have a drink with each other and talk yeah. about how somebody's being fired. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and the phrase is, they got properly pissed, properly which pissed. is something yeah. that you would never hear an anchor uh, well, say. Well, there you are. And yeah. so that's, that's a wonderful twist on the on the uh, model. Also, I also think it's to give you the vibe that this is a pseudo-documentary, mm. even though ah. it's got, yeah, it, you know, it has that feeling of like, he's going to guide yeah. you all the way through this. And give you the background of it as it's occurring, uh, so that's that's the vibe I got. And again, very appropriate, yeah, to the what's coming up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and the thing I think it does too is that it. I think it allows you to laugh in a certain way. Like mm-hmm. this is a this is there is. I think it's doing those weird two things at once. It's exactly as you say, which is that this is the documentary, this is the news broadcaster, but it's also let me tell you a story, let me tell you a fairy tale, almost uh, a uh, a parable. You know, it's something that we can think about that's, that is real, but is yet not real, which is, I think, goes throughout this whole film, is that it is strikingly close to the bone in a lot of ways and also completely ridiculous or seemingly so. Um, and so we say these guys are going to go out and get drunk and we start with William Holden telling this story. And the story is about when he was a young reporter and they're building the lower deck of the George Washington Bridge and he didn't get there in time. So he gets up in his pajamas in the rain and rushes out and says to the cab driver, take me to the center of the George Washington Bridge. And the cab driver says, he says, don't do it, buddy. You're a young man. You got your whole life ahead of you. <laughs> so this story's told twice in the film. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me because what do we see Howard Beale wearing at his most iconic moment in the film? Pajamas and a raincoat. Mm. The same thing that this story starts with. Oh, right. Interesting. Whoa. And so I just keep going like... But we are heading toward this moment, this out, the, the person doesn't knowing out, Great in the middle of the thing. storm, yeah. rushing towards suicide. What was Howard Beale talking about at the beginning of the film is his suicide. Right, right. You know, this is where Patty Chayesky is just a genius. Wow, that's a great point. Mm. And, and the next thing we get to is them in the bar. And the first thing that Howard Beale says, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, shit, Howard. Ugh. I'm going to blow my brains out right on the air, right in the middle of the 7 o'clock news. Get a hell of a rating, I guarantee you that. 50 share, easy. <laughs> there used to be a time when someone would get a 50 <laughs> yeah, share. Right? Yeah, such a thing used to exist. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, William Holden, who's Max Schumacher, who is his producer and old, old friend, says, it's a great idea. 
Yeah. Execution of the week. Terrorist of the week. The death hour. Great Sunday night show for the whole family. Wiped it fucking Disney right off the air. <laughs> Does this movie seem more ridiculous or less ridiculous today? It's topical to me. I, I would say it's absolutely on point today, and especially when you get to that ending. And we've heard for so many years about the possibility of certain things going on behind the scenes, certain conspiracies, certain things going forward, the possibility of what happens at the end. Nowadays, as we're becoming more and more of a violent society, as more and more school shootings, more and more access to guns, the, the things we have around weapons... We're not, I, I, we're not, I would argue we're not a more violent society. Okay. You're yeah. arguing we've always been this violent? Much more so. If you look at this era in the 70s, it was far more violent than today. Really? Oh, yeah. Crime rates in New York City, off the charts. Okay, to today. okay. Yeah. Remember, think about just- But were the crime rates as equal in all other cities across the nation? Oh, yeah. That's what I'm- If I, you think about- I don't the, remember school shootings being a big thing in the 70s. No, that didn't exist. Right. But that's a small percentage of, I mean, you think about like, mm. picture in your mind the French connection. Right. You know, that's the, the, the crime levels were mm. much worse. Than, I mean, all, all of them are down today with the exception of mass shootings. Okay. They've gone up, ticked up a little bit in the last couple of years. Okay. But our perception of violence is much higher. Maybe that's a more uh, accurate statement than you. Yeah. Well, and I think the fact that our perception of violence is so much higher has a lot to do with the news media. Because mm, exactly right. uh, as time has gone on, instead of doing the work that Thomas Jefferson supposedly thought the media were supposed mm. to be doing, which was right. checking up on the elected officials, uh, we see more and more focus on crime. It's uh, When I got to even Channel 2 at the time, uh, when it was supposed to be so hot, there was a guy named Carl Crime, and, and uh, he hung out at the LAPD uh, all the time, and, and he was always covering one uh, salacious crime story after another. But it wasn't the main focus. Now you look at local television, and that's what you see. Yep. Again and again and again and again, and particularly... Uh, focused on neighborhoods where minorities live. It's made it uh, easier uh, for uh, racists and uh, uh, haters to stereotype uh, the people that they hate hmm. because of the way they've been covered on local television. Because it's continually reinforced. That's right. You know, how often is it your ki kids could be dying at school, tune, tune at 11. Yeah. Ooh, right. This must yeah. be really bad. By the way, my choice, whatever I hear something like that is, I am definitely not tuning in at yeah. 11. I do right. not want to know. Well, this is what Faye Dunaway essentially exactly right. lays the groundwork for what we see coming now, even 40 years, over 40 years later from this movie. She says that. There's a great story about film at 11 um, in San Francisco when the medium was beginning to really change. Uh, there was an anchor named Van Ehrenberg, and uh, he appeared uh, early in the evening saying, severed penis found at railroad track. News at 11. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not mine. <laughs> well, um, they never connected it. <laughs> oh, there it is. There it is. So speaking of the news, it's about time to go on the air. And we have just a very ordinary lead up. It's a normal day at the office. And we're prepping stories. And of course, we're hearing things about news of the day of Patty Hearst and Squeaky From. And they are heading off to the control room, which was shot at a real control room in Toronto because they really wanted it to be an actual television studio of which Sidney Lumet is live directing the actual news mm. show mm. and everyone's going god he's so good at this how is he so good at this and of course 
That's where he started. He'd done it. He's having a ball. And Howard is on the air and, and, and the people in the control room are casual and gossiping about business and whatever. And they're not really paying attention because that's the way it really is. And then Howard gets on the air and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, I would like at this moment to announce that I will be retiring from this program in two weeks time because of poor ratings. Since this show was the only thing I had going for me in my life, I have decided to kill myself. And no one in the newsroom quite notices it. Ten seconds to commercial. Oh, tune in next Tuesday. That should give the public relations people a week to promote the show. We ought to get a hell of a rating out of that. Of 50 share. Easy. It's only the two young people in yep. the room who notice it. The young producer on the other side of the window right. and the young lady there who's taking the notes with the glasses. Everyone else is just so bored just so bored with the situation, they don't even notice it. And it takes them to bring the, it back. The news up. had become so routine, mm. you know, that the people in charge really didn't pay much attention, probably didn't watch at all. Mm. The general manager of the station, even the news director, you know, didn't pay all that all that much attention because what they were worried about was what the numbers were going to show mm. as soon as the numbers came up, which wasn't as often as they are now, you couldn't didn't get overnight ratings right. every single day. Well, we're sitting in your studio right now. If in the middle of your next broadcast, in the middle of it, you said, I'm going to kill myself, how long before the people over there would pick up on it? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say that it's a good question. Uh, I just simply don't know, and I couldn't possibly answer it. I hope that they're hanging on your every word. Well, you, I hope so, too. Um and then when they do get it, I love the sort of repeated, like they go out to the mic to talk to the into the studio and they what the hell is going on, Howard? What the fuck's going on, Howard? They want to know what the fuck is going on, Howard. They just want to know what the fuck is going on, Howard. <laughs> I love that. Too, and, you can't hear him. and then finally they go, okay, get him out of here. And they start dragging him out of here. And you have the perfect Howard throwing a punch just as we go to the technical difficulties. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then we get to meet Robert Duvall. We've got a stockholders meeting tomorrow at which we're going to announce the restructuring of management plan. And I don't want this grotesque incident to interfere with that. He is on such a run at this point in his career. And this is he shot this right about the time he's shooting Apocalypse Now, because Apocalypse, this comes out in 76. Yeah. Apocalypse Now comes out in 79, but it took two years to edit. So it's right around the same time. It's just after Godfather 2. I mean, he is and his performance in this is so crazy and so funny. And what they said about casting him is that this is exactly the opposite of who you would cast as the corporate guy, mm. this sort of big, powerful Southern you know, and yet it just works great. Emotional. Emotional. It was beautifully cast. And I have to tell you that I recognized that guy <laughs> when I saw the film. That's sure. That's the people I'm working for. And this is the thing which, I, you know, we've experienced dealing with Hollywood and I'm sure you've experienced dealing with news is there's a lot of time you're like, why is that guy making the decision for me? Well, he doesn't know anything about what I do or how this job gets done. He's looking, but he, but he's the person or she is the person that I have to please in order to do. Th That's why we do a podcast, to be honest, mm. is because the only people John and I have to please are us. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, when I was on set for Wind Talkers in 2000, when I first got here with John Woo, they had brought the production from, M from Hawaii back to Los Angeles because he was having cost overruns. So they had a person on set who was questioning every shot, yep. every uh, setup, everything. And he was walking around, older gentleman, white hair, got the military hat on, walking around, arms folded, never smiled, and was like, nope, we're not doing that shot. 
okay, you're allowed to do this shot. Not, it was all about reining in the costs. And I had never seen that before. Coming out bright-eyed, wide-eyed kid looking at John Woo, this master of cinema, being told what to do by this corporate penny pincher. And I was just shocked yep. that that was a thing. Hey, they don't see it as art. Yeah. Right. No, of course. It's all commerce. Yeah. Um, and that's what's happening right in the scene because the big thing is we got a big corporate board meeting coming up. And what are we going to say? And, of course, Max says, Howard's been under great personal stress, et cetera. And instantly we see the argument between Hackett, the Frank, uh, the Robert Duvall character, and Schumacher over who controls the news. I've got some goddamn surprises for you too, Schumacher. I've had it up to here with your credit division and its annual $33 million deficit. You keep your hands off my news division, Frank. And at this time, according to this film, it is, the news was sort of separate. It was known as a lost leader. It was required in terms of the broadcasting uh, rules that the news had to be put out. And it wasn't considered a thing that was entertainment, according to this film. That's accurate. And when I, after I was at CBS, I went to NBC. And when I was there, KNBC, here in another station owned by the by the network. And in fact, I worked for the network. I didn't work for the station. And there was resentment within the station of the fact that the news department was treated so differently mm. from the other right. parts of the station. And then as time evolved, of course, what uh, they came to understand was, A, they could make a lot of money on news. B, the uh, uh, fairness doctrine and the uh, controls by the FCC had gone away. And so all they have to do is sell time. And uh, news time became part of the, the wheel, just right. like every other kind of time. And all of a sudden, we were concerned about what our lead-in was and what was going to come up on later on the, in the program. We would be assigned to do stories that in some way reflected the entertainment program and it would, that would be coming up later. Hmm. And they could tease to it on the news. You know, the way I always think about I always think hmm. about news is like your doctor. Because you need good news for your health. If the news is healthy, then our society is going to be more healthy. And I always imagine, like, what if the doctor was worried about his lead-in? What if you went to the doctor and he changed his prescriptions based on some corporate thing other than your health or the society's health? You would go, well, I'm not going to see that doctor. I can't trust him. Hmm. And yet that's exactly the situation we're in. With cert you know, Way back in network, certainly, it was the situation. And boy, it sure is the situation today. It sure is. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's meet Faye Dunaway. Um, this is her best performance in my mind. Hmm. I think it's off the charts. And like Duvall, she is on a run from 67 with Bonnie and Clyde through, um, you know, Chinatown through. I mean, she's it's an incredible run of film she's on. And the, the thing that Lumet said to her, he went to meet her at her Central Park West apartment or wherever it was. And he said, Faye, I know the first question you're going to ask me. And she said, what's that? The first question you're going to ask me is, where's her vulnerability? And my answer is, she doesn't have any. And that, and it's interesting because I don't know if I think that's entirely true, particularly when we get to the final scene with Holden. Mm -hmm. But the coldness, the heartlessness, the intensity, and the deep passion for TV is amazing to watch. But you're right about that last scene where having shown no sense of vulnerability whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You just get a look on, it's really a look on her face. Yep. It's an extraordinary performance. And you think, wait a minute, maybe something's finally gotten to her. You know, maybe there is an ounce of humanity left in this woman. And right here, what we're watching with her and Max Schumacher is a robbery of a bank, you know, staged by the ecumenical liberation front or something, which is the, 
you know, a, a reference to Patty Hearst in the, the Sibionese Liberation Army. Yeah. Um, and the great Amon Khan. And there's the Patty Hearst character in the robbery. And Diane thinks this is the greatest thing she's ever seen. This is terrific stuff. And this is a thing you'll see Patty Chayefsky do throughout this film, which is there's two things going on. While she's watching this film, Max is taking calls about Howard. Mm. And Howard is calling to say, give me another chance. Oh, come on, Howard. I have 11 years of this network, Max. I have some standing in the industry. I just don't want to go out like a clown. It'll be simple, dignified. You and Harry can check the copy. Well, okay. And no booze today, Howard. No booze. No booze this time. Yeah. Well, what's great in this moment, too, or in the scene, is that you see Faye Dunaway essentially creating reality television. In that moment. 100% what this is. We got to get a camera. Like, later, this is the beginning in her mind, because she'll do this later in the office. We got to get a camera on these people. We got to put this out. We can create a whole series around these people, stealing stuff or robbing stuff and whatever. We're not going to stop them. We're just going to film them. And right. it's just like, and we're just going to control the situation. And you're, this is the beginning of reality TV that we see now. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and, and just as you say, John, we move into a scene with her staff, including, what was the woman's name again? Conchata Farrell, yeah. Where, where she's pitching this, let's go, f- this is great stuff, I want more of this. And they are completely bewildered. What are we talking about? Look, we've got a bunch of hobgoblin radicals called the Ecumenical Liberation Army who go around taking home movies of themselves robbing banks. Maybe they'll take movies of themselves kidnapping heiresses, um, hijacking 747s, bombing bridges, assassinating ambassadors. We'd open each week's segment with that authentic footage, hire a couple of writers to write some story behind that footage, and we've got ourselves a series. What are we going to call it? The Mousy Tung Hour? <laughs> Why not? And that becomes the name. <laughs> um, and she, she just rips them to pieces. And this is what is weird about this movie, is on the one hand, what she is proposing, I think most people watching this movie go, this this is terrible. This is awful. And yet she is so convincing and she seems so right that you go along with it. You are in this weird way rooting for this thing that you know is bad for you. Uh, I've ne- I never root for her. No way in shape or form. <laughs> really? I, I think it's horrible what she's pitching and completely and what she does to the staff when she closes that door. This is the thing. She doesn't. She doesn't have a vulnerability in that moment, but she's very clear about what she's want. What she oh, wants, yeah. and she takes no joy in destroying these people or threatening their jobs. It's just matter of fact, and that's almost more unsettling because um, there's a sociopath element to that, where there is no human connection here. This is the, what needs to get done. If you can't get it done, your jobs are on the line. I'll find people who can. You're just like, whoa. I, I think. I think what I mean is that. What she says, I think, is so true. Has a truth to it hmm. that is persuasive. So what she says is, they've got strike force, task force, SWAT. Why not Che Guevara and his own little mod squad? Look, I sent you all a concept analysis report yesterday. Did any of you read it? Well, in a nutshell, it said, the American people are turning sullen. They've been clobbered on all sides by Vietnam, Watergate, the inflation, the depression. They turned off, shot up, and they fuck themselves limp, and nothing helps. So. This concept analysis report concludes the American people want somebody to articulate their rage for them. Right. And I think you go, yeah. And by the way, 
I think we still have people articulating people's rage today. Mm-hmm. Look at and, 19, uh, 2016. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, and look at today. Look at, you know, turn on, and I, not to take any political stance on this at all, mm. turn on whichever version of reality you don't like or turn on whichever version of reality you do like and you will find people trying to articulate your rage. Even in sports, Stephen A. Smith makes a whole career out of this on ESPN, well, making six nerd, million a year. Think about all the nerd stuff, yeah, geek Same movie thing. stuff. You have people articulating their rage about Star Wars and Marvel mm-hmm. comics and Game of Thrones every single day. Yep. Of course, it's always been the function of satire. Absolutely. Is to do that, Jonathan Swift uh, he was enraged. Right. Yep. Uh, did it in a different in a different kind of way. But I'm interested in what you said about uh, whether you buy into her argument. Uh, about uh, the Mao Zedongar, it seems to me that it's a real challenge there to the fact that we have, to such an extent, adopted commercial values. Mm. Yeah. And if, in fact, those are your values, and that's what you want to uh, make, make real, mm. then you, you go for the biggest ratings that you can possibly get, whatever it takes. Right. For her, it does. And that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and this is the basic you know, thesis of Patty Chayefsky's network is if dollars drive you, then you drive wherever the dollars take you with. And, and if that is your only value, you know, if the, if the basic rule of corporations is that they owe a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholder, then that becomes the top priority, whether it's environment or where they choose how they treat their workers or Mm. where they ship their jobs or anything else. It all takes second place to the fiduciary responsibility of the shareholders. And that is pretty much Ned Beatty's argument later in the film. Yeah. Um, so she kicks out all those people and we head off to a shareholder meeting where, uh, Frank Hackett Duvall is making a speech and he is talking about making the news division responsible to management Mm -hmm. and everyone is clapping and the camera moves over to Max Schumacher, who has suddenly found out that the news division that he thought was his holy place that he had control over, he might not have control over And this is so key because for everything that has to happen in this film, you have to emotionally put Max Schumacher, the William Holden character, in a position that he allows it to happen. Mm. If he is not in this emotional state, he will not allow Howard Beale to do what Howard Beale does. And he goes up to his boss and says, I want to talk about it. And the boss says, we'll talk about it at tomorrow's meeting, which Schumacher takes to mean you're you're fucked, Mm -hmm. Um, which may or may not be what it means. And we go directly to the control room and there is Howard Beale where he is going to make up for it because he doesn't want to go out that way. And so what we think we're going to hear or what the people in the control room think they're going to hear is an apology. I shouldn't have said that. I'm obviously not going to kill myself and I'm really sorry. And let's make every, you know, maintain the surface facade of the respectable news organization. And that is not what Howard Beale is going to do. To Q Howard. Good evening. Today is Wednesday, September the 24th, and this is my last broadcast. Yesterday, I announced on this program that I was going to commit public suicide, admittedly an act of madness. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I just ran out of bullshit. And this time they listen. Oh, yeah. Control yeah. This time they're awake mm. and hear that. And immediately go, cut them off. Right. And yet at that moment, who has walked into the control room? Max Schumacher, having just come from his boss, who confirmed for him that the news division was taken away, that his whole life work has been destroyed, that the news has been disrespective. And so what does he say? Leave him on. Am I still on the air? 
If this is how he wants to go out, this is how he wants to go out. I think that is an amazing moment. It's a great moment. Yeah. And, and obviously a recognition by him of his powerlessness on the one hand, and on the other hand, a recognition of how right they are, because if they keep him on, his ratings are going to go up. Hmm. Well, yeah. I, well, this is what this is this bizarre paradox of yeah. this movie. Right. And so it's this weird sort of fuck you to the network and also... You know, if here's my friend wants to do this, he wants to do it. And Howard says, Bullshit is all the reasons we give for living. And if we can't think of any reasons of our own, we always have the God bullshit. Holy Mary, mother of God. What he says here is so remarkable. <laughs> it's so funny. We don't know yeah, why Tom, what is going it? through all this pointless pain, humiliation, and decay. So there better be someone somewhere who does know. That's the God bullshit. And what's amazing, too, is that this is all being intercut with the reactions within the control room mm. of people calling up saying, get him off the air, get him off the air. And so you have to interweave this amazing monologue from Howard Beale with the real panic in the control room about what's going out to, you know, 60 million Americans. Mm. And I love the moment where, uh, you know, he's getting the call from the guy and, and Max's response is, he's saying that life is like bullshit and it is. So what are you screaming about? <laughs> it's like, this is the news. I mean, we're just reporting, reporting the news it. here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> life is bullshit. Finally got back to what we're here for in the first place. <laughs> this is actually the truth. <laughs> you know, I think anyone who takes a good look at how the world works. They have to, at some point, conclude, like, oh, my God, this yeah. is all bullshit. Yeah. There's a lot of bullshit going he, on. He's attacking the constructs and the pillars of our society all in one speech. And yeah. and the God the God one is, like, and especially in the mid-70s, I wonder how that uh, people must have been going insane of that in the theaters, having that attacked. But oh, yeah. it's what was going on, because, what, we're only a few years away from the counterculture revolution in the 60s into the early 70s and all that so these are these are now thought processes that are in the mainstream uh conversation with people so i, I find that to be incredible in, well, in the and, monologue and the peter finch max schumacher generation this is the world war ii generation right this is the generation that built these structures that these edifices of how the world mm. was supposed to work that were logical and made sense and didn't see the cracks you know which you know come out in the 60s in the movement and in the 70s and it's like oh this there are a lot of cracks here the term is often used prescient to describe this film and if you consider what's going on today there's it's absolutely appropriate mm. to, word and to think that he did this he figured this out yeah. and had this vision in 1976 really quite extraordinary well and it's people let him say it yeah. yeah. Yes. Everybody got on board and said, "Yeah, do yeah. have these long monologues yeah. about politics mm. and attacking the basic edifices of society. Go yeah. for it. Let's do it." Well, but in the way that they did it, though, and with you know, he's saying it, other people are reacting, uh, so you get sort of a, a horrified reaction, and you hardly notice. What is he saying? God bullshit? Excuse me? You know, all of right. a sudden he just gets away with it. You know, it right. happens. Well, if there's anybody out there that can look around this demented slaughterhouse of a world we live in and tell me that man is a noble creature, believe me, that man is full of bullshit. Completely attacking American, the idea of American exceptionalism. Sure. Right. And all sorts of other stuff. All yeah. sorts of other stuff. Yeah. 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 Well, and what's the reaction in the studio? They yeah. laugh. Yeah. yeah. What's so goddamn funny? I can't help it, Harry. It's funny. I don't. Because it's funny. Yeah. 
And this is like this thing, you know, that comedy is serious stuff. Satire, this is a serious movie that is really, really funny. Mm. There's also a great line, because you're going back and forth between the drama in the control room and what Howard Beale's saying. So we miss a lot of what he's saying. And they manage to come back to him at these moments. And one of them is he says, And I was married for 33 years of shrill, shrieking fraud. And that line's just, it's just out there. We don't know much of, we know that he's just gotten divorced from his wife mm. or his wife has just died i think yeah and we, so we know that's something and we know he's been depressed and that the depressed has led to a loss of ratings but shrill shrieking fraud there is a way that the english language works that is beautiful and just those three words shrill shrieking fraud and you hear it throughout patty chavsky's writing is he has a love of words a love of the sound of words and how they fit together that is again i don't make the shakespeare comparison lightly or often but this is one where i like this dude understands language and how to use it mr hackett's trying to get through to you tell mr hackett to go fuck himself and we end with so i don't have any bullshit left i just ran out of it you see and he smiles. I think he feels really good at this moment. <laughs> he finally like, gets to say what he thinks. I get to say what I think. Yeah. You've been doing this. You've been on microphones and in front of cameras for a really long time. Do you have this feeling sometimes? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, when I was in television, I was never a full-time anchor, but I would do substitute anchoring from time to time, um, which I didn't like much. Um, in fact... I was at a restaurant one night, and a woman came up to me and said, you know, I saw you anchor the news tonight, and you looked like you were in pain. <laughs> and uh, I was, because what happens is, or what happened in those days, was you get up and you're reading somebody else's copy hmm. about a story you don't really know anything about, and that the person who wrote the copy probably didn't know anything about right. either. Hmm. Uh, and it has very hard to to do that and do it persuasively, Without at least having in some way, and I guess, unfortunately for me, I did and it showed on my face. I thought it was bullshit. <laughs> it's, it must be so hard. I mean, because it's just the job. Your job is to, this is what you got to yeah. say at this moment. Yeah. Um, and I should say something about Peter Finch. Lumet was against hiring him at first. Wow. Yeah. And the reason is, is that Finch is Australian oh. and a great actor. Uh, and it acted tons on the stage in London and, you know, and he's like, the guy's fantastic, but the anchor is an American role. Yeah. Like, and he didn't know that he could do it. And Chayefsky wanted Peter Finch. And so they call up Finch and Finch says, send me a videotape of Walter Cronkite and a copy of the New York Times. Two weeks later, they get a videotape of Peter Finch reading the entire New York Times with a perfect American accent. And they go, okay. Mm. We go back to a, a meeting with Hackett and uh, Max is there and the president of the network is there and but they're trying to damage control this whole thing. And the main result of it is that Max gets fired now officially. And then they go, hey, does anyone know where Howard Beale is? And of course, he's down there talking to reporters, mm -hmm. looking as happy and as comfortable as we've seen him in the whole movie. <laughs> well, every day, five days a week for 15 years, I've been sitting behind that desk the dispassionate pundit reporting with seemly detachment the daily parade of lunacies that constitute the news. And just once, I wanted to say what I really felt. And then we see this on TV. And who is watching this TV but Faye Dunaway with uh, a lover, presumably, and she's basically says, knock it off. She says, knock it off, yeah. 
<laughs> I don't think she seems like a fun girl to date. Well, she, yeah. <laughs> she controls everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and has very little attention for her. Of course. Her. Yeah. Once she gets her, she's done. Well, and she and all she what she cares about is TV. Yeah, TV. That's Truth it. is not her concern. No. <laughs> no. Nor nor love or connection or human compassion or a whole bunch of other stuff that we might think might be important to a person. Um, it's the next day and the ratings have, have come in. Hey, that went pretty well. And Diane wants a meeting with Hackett, which she gets, and she goes in to have the meeting and she shows him the ratings and the editorials of the New York Times. And Duvall is looking at her like she is crazy. Oh, for God's sakes, Diane, are you suggesting we put that lunatic back on the air yelling bullshit? Yes. I think we should put Beale back on the air tonight and keep him on. And again, you put these words into her mouth that are so articulate and so amazing. Frank, that dumb show jumped five rating points in one night. Tonight's show has got to be at least 15. We just increased our audience by 20 or 30 million people in one night. Now, you're not going to get something like this dumped in your lap for the rest of your days, and you can't just piss it away. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bullshit. He's articulating the popular rage. Which is what she had said she wanted before, mm. articulating the popular rage. I want that show, Frank. I can turn that show into the biggest smash on television. What do you mean you want that show? It's a new show. It's not your department. I see Howard Beale as a latter-day prophet, a magnificent messianic figure inveighing against the hypocrisies of our times, a strip Safanarola Monday through Friday that I tell you, Frank, could just go through the roof. I had to look up Safanarola. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Renaissance-era cleric who was known for his uh, big speeches. I didn't know what that was. I'm talking about a $6 cost per thousand show. I'm talking about a hundred, $130,000 minutes. Do you want to figure out the revenues of a strip show that sells for 100000 bucks a minute? One show like that could pull this whole network right out of the whole network. Frank, it's being handed to us on a plate. Let's not blow it. That's reality television. That mm -hmm. is, you are a hundred percent right. Is that you think about like Game of Thrones today, which is you know the biggest mm -hmm. show on TV, but it costs fifteen to twenty million dollars an episode. Yeah, this costs nothing. Right. That was the you know that's Big Brother, that's Survivor, that's American Idol. It's these cheap shows that you can get everybody to watch. As soon as that writer strike happened in the mid '90s, all of a sudden they sh they flooded the airways with these reality shows because they were cheap to produce, they could work non-union, and they didn't have to pay actors anything. They paid those people a certain amount, and they was done. I, I worked on a couple of them, and it's mind blowing what they do on those things to create entertainment. It's it's not in any way, shape, or form a reality show. And when the networks. Uh and the local stations began to realize that uh, you could make money with news. A lot of people were watching. Oh, yeah. Then they began looking at the uh, cost of production. And my God, the cost of production, as you're saying, mm. by, compar by comparison to even the entertainment shows of the day, nothing. Yeah. Yep. Nothing at all. So jack it up. Frank, let's not go to committee on this. It's 20 after 10. We want Beale in that studio by half past six. We don't want to lose the momentum. For God's sakes, Diana, we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on national television. His main thing is, well, I've got to have to check it out with legal. And when someone says, I'm going to have to check it out with legal, you got him. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes upstairs to the big board meeting, which is, by the way, this was all shot at the MGM had a building in New York that had three empty floors. The entire movie shot on location. They all shot it on these. And the thing about it, it... it 
Something you don't see, particularly in movies at the time, is those there are windows in every scene where you're seeing those New York streets. And Lumet had an approach to lighting this film, which is that he wanted it to start off completely realistic. That means minimal lighting, almost all natural light as much as he could, nothing trying to be dramatic. You have these sort of broadly lit scenes in the newsroom that are very simple. And as the movie progresses, he wanted to shift it to more, he called it corrupting the camera, that the camera movement and the lighting changes into becoming more dramatic, more movie movie-like as the story goes on. And this is the same thing we saw because uh, John and I did 12 Angry Men as one of our really early podcasts, mm-hmm. one of your favorite movies of all time. Absolutely. And he did the same thing, which is that movie starts off in wide shots mm-hmm. and uh, and ends up in long lenses and that he changes it and it starts off light and ends up dark and, and he changes it step by step through the course of the film, his approach to shooting a film, which is just brilliant and thank you hard. for saying that I, I, that's a wonderful perception about the about the film and it makes me understand better how it functions and how it appeals and, yeah. and how it works over time well, well because and this is a thing which he doesn't want anybody in the audience to go oh, i noticed that the lighting has become more dramatic as we moved on <laughs> no, that's course. not the point yeah. the point is that it, it just feels different yeah. but right now we're still very much in this naturalistic uh, lighting in the real dining room of mgm on the you know 18th floor or whatever of this building I like this scene because he's not really trying to convince the other executives that he's doing it. He's doing this. Mm. And they have an objection that's saying, well, you know, we're a respectful network. We can't do a thing like this. And he says, we're not a respectable network. We're a whorehouse network. We have to take whatever we can get. Well, I don't want any part of it. I don't fancy myself the president of a whorehouse. That's very commendable of you, Nelson. Now sit down. Your indignation has been duly recorded. You can always resign tomorrow. He tells them the reality of the situation, even though they're caught up in thinking they're they're important people in an important situation. He said, no, here's the truth. We're losing money, so you can grandstand and feel grandiose about things, but you can be out of a job real soon, or you can get on board and make money with this situation. Swallow your pride, because this is the only way out to keep your job. And it's a hard pill for all of them to swallow, especially what's his face, uh, the Rody. Yeah. Well, they're two white haired guys. President. Yeah. yeah there's that, that. I never remember which one is. He which. was in the verdict, by the way. Oh, really? He's the doctor that they're suing. Oh, that's on with on the James stand. Mason. Yeah. We got to do that movie too. Uh, we do. Yeah, that's Verdict's a great movie. Fantastic. That's Sidney Lumet, I think. As it's well. also Lumet. Yeah. Yes. No, Sidney Lumet is he's great. Yeah. Here's the thing I think that's interesting too, and it, it, we sort of t- touched on it a little bit before is on the one hand. We don't like Frank Hackett. Like, right. he is the corporate asshole who's looking at his money as the bottom line. He's the guy who's firing Max Schumacher. He doesn't have any values beyond money. We don't like him. We don't want him to succeed. On the other hand, we want more Howard Beale. Yeah. So we as the audience kind of like him shutting these people down because we want to get the thing we want to get, even though that's not what we want to get. <laughs> But this is what, I mean, this is how good movies work sometimes. That's how good television works, too. Giving you what you didn't know you wanted. Even though you thought you didn't want it, you actually do. Well, you know what the best example of this in TV, I think, is? Is Breaking Bad. Right. Is that this is a horrible person who's going to become increasingly horrible, and that is what we want to see. Mm. We don't want him to be a school teacher and die of cancer. We want him to be a horrible (laughs) drug dealer and murder people. (laughs) Um, yeah, or, or Hannibal Lecter. We like seeing Hannibal Lecter do mm. terrible things. Once again, that's that paradox we've talked about before, where on the one hand, you're being told and you understand that what have, is happening with Beale is just a terrible thing and what the corporation is doing is a terrible thing. But wait a minute. In some sense, they're right, right 
because just as much as the audience was tuning in to see him, mm. you want to see it too. Yeah. Well, I, I, we can even call this just the rubbernecker philosophy. As you yeah, know, yeah. your freeway is going shorter and it's sure. messing you up because everyone's looking at that thing. But when you get close, I kind of want to see too, you know? Uh, <laughs> so Max has been fired. He's packing up. He and Howard are reminiscing about the good old days with Edward R. Murrow and Cronkite and the boys, and they start laughing and telling stories, and Howard is wearing a fantastic 70s black turtleneck. <laughs> it's really good. And they're laughing and joking together, and a guy comes in and asks what's funny, and suddenly the whole newsroom is there, and he is once again telling that joke mm-hmm. about the George Washington Bridge, and everyone is laughing, and then one of the producer guys comes in and say, hey, do you want to see here's something really funny? I've just come back from Frank Hackett's office, and he wants to put Howard back on the air tonight. No, apparently the ratings went up five points last night, and he wants Howard to go back on and do his angry man thing. And that guy is uh, the uh, the lawyer against Joe Pesci in My Cousin Vinny. That's that actor. Because I kept looking at him. All these, these worked forever, these guys. I kept looking at him going, like, he looks like young Joe Don Baker or something. Mm, Yes, a little bit. But that's that's not who it is, yeah. And then we get into this thing of, like, they want him to be an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisy of our time. And what's wrong with being an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisies of our times? (laughs) What do you think, Max? Do you want to be an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisies of our times? Yeah, I think I'd like to be an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisies of our times. <laughs> I love how much they say that in this yeah. scene. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant use of language. Yeah. And, and, and I love even the president of the network. You think that he's going to be on the moral side on some level. But his reason of letting this happening is that he thinks Hackett's overstepped himself and he's going to hang himself with this thing. And so he wants it to happen to destroy his corporate enemy. Ah, yeah. There's not a lot of places that we can feel good about a moral core here, including Max, who's mm-hmm. probably the most, but he's the old guy who's going to go off and have an affair on his, you know, right. so we're not going to feel that great about him either. But unfortunately, doesn't work that well. Our narrator comes back and says, you know, he ratings are kind of poor and maybe this isn't going to work. Chayefsky delays us getting to the thing that we want mm-hmm. for a long time. Because we think, oh, now it's going to start. No, it's not going to start. And Diane goes to see uh, Max. It's late at night. And now it's where we see the lighting start to become a little bit less realistic, a little bit more romantic. Mm. And she talks to him about this fortune teller she met, strangely enough, named Sybil the Soothsayer. <laughs> so I called her this morning and asked her how she was on predicting the future. She said she was occasionally prescient. For example, she said... I just had a fleeting vision of you sitting in an office with a craggy middle-aged man with whom you are or will be emotionally involved. And you see that look from Max. And then she kind of moves on and says that she's interested in Howard Beale. Uh, He's being irascible. We want a prophet, not a curmudgeon. He should do more apocalyptic doom. I think you should take on a couple of writers to write some Jeremiads for him. I see you don't fancy my suggestions. Well, you're not serious, are you? Oh, I'm serious. The fact is, I could make your Beale show the highest-rated news show in television if you'd let me have a crack at it. What do you mean, have a crack at it? I'd like to program it for you. Develop it. I wouldn't interfere with the actual news itself, but TV is showbiz, Max. And even the news has to have a little showmanship. And he is someone indignant. My God, you are serious. 
And her response, and this goes to everything we've been talking about, is... I watched your 6 o'clock news today. It's straight tabloid that you had. A minute and a half of that lady riding a bike naked in Central Park. On the other hand, you had less than a minute of hard national and international news. It was all sex, scandal, brutal crime, sports, uh, children with incurable diseases, and lost puppies. So I don't think I'll listen to any protestations of high standards of journalism. Now, you're right down in the street soliciting audiences like the rest of us. Look, all I'm saying is... If you're going to hustle, at least do it right. She nails it. Boy, she does. And, and I, I mean, I haven't put a stopwatch on. I, haven't, I don't watch local news, but I haven't put a stopwatch on a local news show in a long time. But my guess is that breakdown's pretty good. Just add a couple yeah. of minutes for the weather. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. And it took a very short time for that to happen. Yeah. It evolved very quickly in starting out in the, in the late 70s. Or excuse me, the uh, late, late 60s when things were pretty good. Mm-hmm. And by the time... Patty Shavsky, uh took a look at it in 1976. We had something very different. Yeah. And he thought that she was com- talking to him about a relationship with a cracky middle-aged man. Yeah. And I love her response. Oh, I wouldn't rule that out entirely. And what he says is, All right, Diana. You bring up all your ideas at the meeting tomorrow, because if you don't, I will. I think Howard's making a goddamn fool of himself, and so does everybody that Howard and I know in this industry. It was a fluke. It didn't work. So tomorrow, Howard goes back to the old format, and all of this gutter depravity comes to an end. Then he asks, why did you even, if you were going to go to the meeting anyway, why why even come down here? Why have this conversation? And she says, well, because of this schoolgirl crush that she had on this distinguished journalism when she was at the University of Missouri. I uh, think I once gave a lecture at the University of Missouri. I was in the audience. I had a terrible schoolgirl crush on you for a couple of months. And again, he asks about emotional involvements and middle-aged men. And there's a great reaction from her. And she picks up the phone. I can't make it tonight, love. Call me tomorrow. And they look at each other. You have a favorite restaurant? I eat anything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's so true. There's so many levels to that oh, yeah. line. <laughs> and he says, Son of a bitch, I get a feeling I'm being made. You are. <laughs> she never lies. Nope. She's no. always straight up. <laughs> and he says, uh, i got to warn you, I, I don't do anything on my first date. We'll see. <laughs> and I love, as he walks to get his coat, he says, Schmuck, what are you getting into? <laughs> right. It's great. Good stuff. Fan, Really good stuff. Um, and we're out at a restaurant, which is, by the way, Elaine's in New York, yeah. which rarely has a film was a film ever shot at Elaine's. And this, of course, was the place for celebrities at yeah. that era of time. I think it closed in early 2000s. Did you ever go to Elaine's? I never did, but I knew people who did. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> talked to them about it. And she has a long monologue about her marriages and therapists and that she's everyone she's had sex with says she's a lousy lay. I can't tell you how many men have told me what a lousy lay I am. I apparently have a masculine temperament. I arouse quickly, consummate prematurely, and can't wait to get my clothes back on and get out of that bedroom. And that was that was really... Pretty advanced stuff in terms of Mm -hmm. the kind of uh, uh, thing that audiences will tolerate and that uh, uh, people who censor one way or another will uh, draw attention to. And I don't think I don't think it really resonated. I don't think anybody nailed them for that, did they? Mm -hmm. 
Not as far as I know. Yeah. Not as far as I know. I don't remember seeing a film before that. It had anything that candid about mm -hmm. uh, sexual behavior and activity and the way people think about it. You know, I think when you, mm -hmm. when you have a movie that has so much that's out there, you got to kind of pick and choose. Yeah. You know, when the biggest, loudest thing is the guy crawling, crying bullshit about national TV, and then we have terrorists that are being filmed as television. Sure. Maybe this stuff they don't even pay attention to. Yeah, yeah maybe uh, like Carnal Knowledge, maybe, or Bob and Carol, yeah. Ted and Alice, maybe those films had kind of yeah, broached the subject. Yeah. And yeah. then this is like a really, almost like a mainstream film, yeah. speaking yeah. about it with these esteemed actors. And then she says, I seem to be inept at everything except my work. I'm good at my work. So I confine myself to that. All I want out of life is a 30 share and a 20 rating. Um, and to take a moment here, like, this is a woman in the 70s. Right. In a male-dominated industry. With an older, powerful man. Right. Who is, yep. What it must, like, I would love to know who Patty based this character on, where he created this character or found this character, or maybe someone sparked this uh, idea of his to create this kind of character. So after the film came out, apparently there were all sorts of people in all sorts of network <laughs> television jobs who said, that was based on me. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but as far as I know... <laughs> None of them are. Um, right. And we hear a little bit about Max's life. He's you know married 25 years. He has one daughter going into college, one daughter who's pregnant. And then uh, she asks if his wife's out of town, and he says no. And she says, well, we better go to my place then. Mm. So, yeah, he was being made. Yeah. Allowing himself to be made. Yes. Yes. Willingly. Oh, willingly. Willingly. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, there's no question from the moment I think she walks in and says the thing about the craggy middle-aged man it's not going to be putting up much of a mm -hmm. argument on this one. Um, Howard is lying in bed. A light is on his face. <laughs> I love this scene. And the camera is slowly pushing in and he is speaking to an unseen voice and says, yes, I hear you. Yes. Yes. And then he says, why me? I said, why me? And then there is an almost beatific smile on his face. And he says, Okay. Next day, we're in the newsroom, and Max tells Howard, I'm killing the whole screwball Andy Prophet thing. Tonight, we go back to straight news. So I guess it's done. Uh, we're in the control room, and everyone says, Howard's been great. He's been funny. Everything's been fine. Uh, and then we put him on camera, and Howard says, Last night, I was awakened from a fitful sleep shortly after 2 o'clock in the morning by a shrill sibilant, faceless voice. It's interesting that the word is shrill because that is how he described his yeah. wife. Mm. Oh, his uh, marriage. His marriage. His marriage. He never specifically Fair says point. my wife. Fair yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, and he says, I want you to tell the people the truth. Not an easy thing to do because the people don't want to know the truth. And I said, you're kidding. What the hell should I know about the truth? But the voice said to me, don't worry about the truth. I will put the words in your mouth. And I said, what is this, the burning bush? For God's sake, I'm not Moses. And the voice said to me, and I'm not God. What has that got to do with it? And the voice said to me, we're not talking about eternal truth or absolute truth or ultimate truth. We're talking about impermanent, transient human truth. I don't expect you people to be capable of truth, but God damn it, at least you're capable of self-preservation. And I said, why me? And the voice said, because you're on television, dummy. You have 40 million Americans listening to you, and after this show, you could have 50 million. For Pete's sake, I'm not asking you to walk the land in sackcloth and ashes preaching the Armageddon. You're on TV, man. So I 
thought about it for a moment. And then I said, okay. This is the transition. And we're in Max's office. And Max says, Howard, I'm taking you off the air. I think you're having a a breakdown and require treatment. And Howard's response is poetic and detached and soft. And frankly, for anyone who's been on acid, it sounds like he's describing a drug trip. (laughs) Um, He says, This is not a psychotic episode. This is a cleansing moment of clarity. I'm imbued, Max. I'm imbued with some special spirit. It's not a religious feeling at all. It's a shocking eruption of great electrical energy. I feel vivid and flashing as if suddenly I'd been plugged into some great electromagnetic field. I feel connected to all living things, to flowers, birds, all the animals of the world. And even to some great unseen living force, what I think the Hindus call prana. That sounds like a drug trip. I mean, if anyone... um, Speak for yourself. I'm pretty sure I just did. Um, And he says, it's It's not a breakdown. I've never felt more orderly in my life. It is a shattering and beautiful sensation. It is the exalted flow of the space-time continuum, save that it is spaceless and timeless and of such loveliness. I feel on the verge of some great ultimate truth. And again, mm-hmm. I don't know how you make anyone makes this movie, because this is he just went on a poetic rant. That is so, and the language of it is beautiful. It's beautiful, Mm -hmm. but it's also, there are a lot of people that had to get their dictionaries out to go, what the hell was he talking about? Um, And we just, he says it, and then there's this moment. The other producer uh, has come in, and Max looks over at him, and Howard sees that Max looked over at him, and the look is clearly like, this guy's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's the you're crazy look, and he sees it, and suddenly he becomes paranoid and says, And you will not take me off the air for now or for any other spaceless time. And then he passes out. I want to ask you this. How much is Howard in control of this in his mind? I think that is like the most same question. Because the pass out happens. It's a gimmick. It ends up becoming a gimmick. That's what I think. By the end of the movie and before he gets killed. But he does this at the end of these bursts of energy and bursts of truth that are coming out of his mouth. He then passes out. So the question is, is this a gimmick of his to get what he wants? Or is this like, is is this a psychotic break? And it is how it's manifesting itself. I wonder. My answer is yes. <laughs> that he's in control? No. Oh, My answer it, is it's both. Mm. Is that, I, and I don't know the, I mean, like, I think he's a totally unknowable character, frankly. That's I think a fair he's, point. he's going through stuff. Yeah. I think he is having these moments of clarity, of mental. He believes he is having these moments. I think things are happening in his brain that right. were not happening in his brain a month before. Right. Fair. I, I, I think he is feeling all sorts of stuff, but I also think that he's a showman, mm-hmm. you know? The desire to be on air. Who doesn't have that ego who works in front of a camera, right? This desire to, there's some 
I have to believe that there's some level of importance that says I must be on camera to speak this stuff, to talk about this stuff. Like I can deliver this, I can do this. And I feel like he has that, especially amongst the main anchors, the the high anchors, sure. right? Uh, so I wonder if that's part of it too, this desire to be back on television. It seems to me there's this contradiction because on the one hand, he goes on as an anchorman and he's speaking bullshit. But on the other hand, audiences listen to him as if he is a visionary and a seer mm. and really knows the truth and he's laying it out on the news and it's got to be the news and we care about the news and it's truth and that's what we're getting. So there's this, once again, this contradiction that is so much a part of his character, his his experience, mm. that you really feel it. Well, and I think too, like humans exist in this you know, field of rewards of positive and negative consequences. Yeah. And so he's giving the news that he thinks is bullshit and his ratings are going down. And then he cries bullshit and people are suddenly interested. And the more crazed he becomes, the more people are hanging on his every word. Mm. And I mean, I'm sure we've all seen people in our various industries where they always believe they're a special person. And then when the universe comes back and says, you are special, then that allows them to become more of this version of themselves for positive and negative reasons. Yeah. And so like he, I think, I mean, I think he is having a breakdown on some level, mm -hmm. but I also think he's using the breakdown. You know, it is reinforcing a vision of himself that he really likes, yeah. which is as the angry prophet, you know, decrying the hypocrisies of our time. Well, you, of course you like it. Yeah. And, and when people uh, treat you that way, you feel you have to act accordingly yep. and you don't want it to stop that's for sure like most televangelists so so max takes howard back to his place he's lying on the couch there we hear thunder and lightning and uh whether thunder and lightning become important like this is the religious significance of this thing mm -hmm. and he's tossing and turning and then he gets up and uh the next morning uh, Max's wife, which is Beatrice Strait, who won the Academy Award for her role in this for really? two scenes. Really? What? Oh my God. Yep. I did not know that. Best supporting I didn't actress. either. And she says, but it's such a small. Yep. Just, yep. Wow. Two scenes. She gets up. She notices Howard's hmm. gone. She comes back. By the way, one little touch. Movies are always about little tiny details. When she gets out of bed, she covers Max back up with the covers. Hmm. It's totally small. But. You know so much about who this person is by yeah. that gesture of yeah. care for this person yeah. when she gets up and she comes back and she says, Wake up, Max, because Howard's gone. And now there is a panic. What do you mean you don't know where he is? The son of a bitch is a hit, goddammit! Over 2,000 phone calls! Go down to the mailroom. As of this minute, over 14,000 telegrams. The response is sensational. Herb telling. Max Herb's phone hasn't over. stopped ringing. Every goddamn affiliate from Albuquerque to Sandusky. The response is sensational. And Duvall is hilarious in this scene. Oh, my God. He is just he is just manic and crazed and angry. He should be jumping off a roof for all I know. The man is insane. He's not responsible for himself. He needs care and treatment. And all you grave robbers think about is that he's... I hit... And Diane's response is, maybe he's imbued. Maybe he is really, you know, he says he's having a religious thing. Yeah. Maybe it's true. Who of us is qualified to say no? <laughs> Which, coming from, coming from, from the Senate. Yeah, right. It's perfect. <laughs> you know, sure, maybe he is. And then her description, which I love, is she says, even if he's as mad as Moses. Yeah. Now, I think that is a fascinating line. Yeah. Because contained within that line is, I think all religion is insane. Right. Sure. <laughs> Moses was insane. Sure. So maybe he's just as mad as him, <laughs> which, of course, for her would be great. And Max goes, no, I'm not putting him back on the air. 
And Diane's response is... It's not your show anymore, Max. It's mine. I gave her the show, Schumacher. I'm putting the network news show under programming. Uh, Mr. Ruddy has had a mild heart attack and is not taking calls. In his absence, I'm making all network decisions, including one I've been wanting to make a long time. You're fired. And I love William Holden's quiet, strong, and somewhat dangerous dignity in this scene mm. is great. Well, let's say fuck you, Hackett. You want me out of here, you're going to have to drag me out kicking and screaming and the whole news division kicking and screaming with me. He does the threat. You want me out of here, you're going to have to drag me kicking and screaming and the entire news division apparently is going to come with him. No, they're not. In the simplicity of Duval is like, I think in this recession they're going to go with you, you're out of your mind. <laughs> There's a great Duval moment where he's standing up to Schumacher and he says, and, I, and I'll just cut to the quote because I can't do it. I got a hit, Schumacher, and Ruddy doesn't count anymore. He was hoping I'd follow my face with his Beale show, but I didn't. It's a big, fat, big-titted hit, and I don't have to waffle around with Ruddy anymore. Only Duvall could say that line like that. <laughs> Nobody yells better than Duvall in film. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. It's so, it, it doesn't overwhelm you, but it's so pointed. And his body arches over when he yells. <laughs> like he's, I'm going to tell you something right now. And it becomes this, right? And it's fantastic to watch. Nobody does it better than him. I love the fact that the news director, the news department rather, yeah. just won't go along. You know, yeah. they can't, they can't do it. There for so many reasons. And, and, uh, and none of them really recognizes, I think, what's going on yeah. around them either. And uh, he asks if Diane is going along with this. And she's like, look, I wanted to work with you on this. And his response is, Well, let's just say, fuck you too, Lonnie. And she takes it. Because it's not the first time she's heard it. Yeah. yeah. Certainly. And so she rolls with it. And and Max makes his exit. And after he's gone, in a quiet moment, Hackett turns to Diane and says, Something going on between you and Schumacher? Not anymore. <laughs> it's great. Yep. Problem is, still can't find Howard. He is walking in the rain, in the pajamas, with the raincoat. He comes into the lobby of the news building, and the guard says, How do you do, Mr. Beale? I must make my witness. Sure thing, Mr. Beale. He's got that smirk on his face, too, when he's closing the door of the, dar- the guard, because he's like, man, this guy's crazy. Well, here's the thing. So Lamette <laughs> talked about this moment a lot, and I think this is key to the movie, mm. which is that when he originally directed it, Lumet had the guard do a big reaction to, oh my God, this guy's crazy. Right. Like a big, you're crazy reaction. And Patty ran up to him and said, that's not the joke. He has to not have a big reaction. He has to not really react to him. Right. And Lumet didn't understand it at first and then went, oh, that's the whole movie. If the guard reacts to, to Howard Beale like he's an insane person. Right. Then the, the the joke is Howard Beale is crazy. Yeah. If the guard doesn't react that much, then the joke is the world is crazy. Hmm. And two, the audience has bought into mm-hmm. what is being what it's being told. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and we're in the control room, and they're totally unprepared for him. He walks in, still in the raincoat, still in the pajamas, hair still wet. <laughs> they're trying to make him up as we're going from another news story, which is Gerald Ford or something like that, going on. And they cut to Howard, and here we are. This is one of the great speeches in the history of Hollywood. There's so much in this scene, in this monologue, and it just starts with saying a truth that maybe is news. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. 
punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. How often do we feel like that? I think so many people feel like that, that we now have a political system that is brought to us mm. by an electorate uh, for exactly those kinds of sentiments and those kinds of reasons. And that's what is appealed to by the current the president of the United States. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah, they mm. adjust their message to fit that mentality sure. that all this stuff is happening. You're powerless. Sure. They're trying to take everything away from you. What are you going to do about it? Fight, fight, fight. And and don't worry about morals or principles or racism or bigotry or misogyny. Fight. Get what you want. Well, and, and this idea of it seems like everything's going crazy. And we are terrible as a people to fall into that trap. And that scares me more. The electorate does what it does. It's the people that really that respond to it and decide the direction. Well, this is the thing that Diane is talking about that she understood, and obviously Patty Chayefsky understood, which is having someone to articulate the popular mm. rage. Mm -hmm. Is that everybody in the in the in the button-down pre-Howard Beale world was you had the reporter saying, you know, that's the way it is. Mm. And he was calm and he was reasonable and he was um dependable. And he did not articulate the common rage. And Howard Beale comes on and says we know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller and all we say is please at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radios and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. You know, we talk about this being prescient and it wasn't, this, it wasn't that long after this film that Ronald Reagan came along. And one of the things that is most often said about Ronald Reagan and the reason that he was successful is that he was able to articulate grievances. Mm. And he was able to do it, of course, in an extraordinarily effective way. Yeah. And that's what made him president of the United States, first governor, then president. He was good at it. Well, he did this weird thing, which was to say, to really point at various evils, you know, things that he perceived as evils, yeah. um, whether it was Russians or crime or whatever it was, but also to be calming in a way and say, it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, he did that. <clears throat> Plus he also managed to articulate the grievances in a very persuasive manner saying, you know, the worst, however many l words it is in the English language are, I'm from the, the government, government and I'm here to, to help. <laughs> and this is such a, a wonderfully uh, effective right. line and a way to appeal to that grievance without appearing to do it. Yeah. Um, and one of the things we see in the course of this scene is the reactions, particularly from Faye Dunaway, because now he has become the thing that he she wants him to come because he says, well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. And then here's the section that I've been thinking about that I never thought about before. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. And again, the reactions from, from Faye Dunaway are incredible. But this is the thing I've been thinking about. First, you've got to get mad. Mm. 
I think first you got to get mad is where we are in the world today. And it is so destructive because he isn't offering any solutions. He doesn't know what to do. Mm. He says, first, you got to get mad. And if you turn on whichever network of your persuasion you want, they're starting with first, you got to get mad. The point is anger. And if you're on Facebook or you're on Twitter, Mm. all of those things are exploiting first, you got to get mad. And if you look at the algorithms on YouTube, they are pulling you to get mad because get mad keeps you activated, keeps you there, but you don't fucking do anything you know and that our mad the little mad button on our adrenal gland has gotten punched over and over and over again and we're just these burning balls of madness walking around Mm -hmm. but we're not solving any problems on the other hand people say that the only reason or the only way that effective social change ever happens is when enough people get mad to actually do something true it's just what's second First, you got to get mad, sure. And what change are you going to make? Yeah. You know, what direction are you going to go? That's what's so dangerous. Mm. There are options. Well, the direction Howard Beale wants you to go right now is to get up. (laughs) So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Take this anymore. This was surprising. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. But it's this anymore Mm. over and over again. And I myself was like, oh, oh, the quote's been wrong all these years in my head. I had no idea. Use of language, the effectiveness Mm -hmm. of the language, just even in in a word like that. Yeah, because it is singular. This is more expansive. What is this? Well, this is in my oh. world circumstance, like right. what I'm in. Yes, right. totally. Right point. And Diane's reaction immediately is, how many stations is this going out to? <laughs> we hear it's 67. And she runs out of the room. She goes uh, down the hallway. And Howard Beale has gotten up. He's gotten up from the news anchor decks. And you can see the director going, stay with him, stay with him. And you see the camera pulling back <laughs> so as, as technicians are scrambling to move the cables and the wall is opening up and the camera's moving. He's off the set and he is yelling right at that camera, repeating over and over again, I'm mad as hell. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell and say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. And then we see that Max, no longer with a job, is sitting home with his family watching this on TV. And Faye Dunaway's on the phone calling up uh, Atlanta and they're screaming in Atlanta. And back with Max and his daughter, and his daughter gets up and walks to the window. He's going, what are you doing? She says, I want to see if anybody's yelling. And Max, of course, shakes his head because he's sure that no one no would be yelling, obviously. She opens up the window, and there we hear the first yell. I'm mad as hell. And Max gets up to walk to the window. And now we're on this street, and this is a real street in New York. They had to spend all day lighting this. This is actually a really complicated shoot because of all these extras and all these different places that are all on different walkie-talkies that have to pop out their heads at different moments and start uh, yelling. You have a complicated lighting scheme, including uh, lightning effects that are going to happen. And it was all shot in one night, and we hear the whole neighborhood start yelling, I'm mad as hell. And Max listens to it as it builds into this tremendous cacophony. And then he slowly closes the window. There are some speeches in film which have moved beyond the screen and lodged themselves into the public consciousness. Tyler Durden and the Rules of Fight Club. Robin Williams telling his students to seize the day. 
Mel Gibson in blue paint screaming about freedom, and George C. Scott standing in front of that American flag and explaining what war really is. But for me, there is no film speech so powerful, articulate, and so incredibly prescient as Howard Beale in that wet raincoat, screaming that he is mad as hell and he's not going to take this anymore. It is a moment of shattering, honest rage, and one that echoes throughout film history and still has things to teach us about the world we see around us today. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. It's a remarkable sequence. One of the great in film. And we're still using that line. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who never saw the movie don't know where it came from. Right. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. And a little thing about how it was shot. So they sit down to do it. Take one was excellent. Finch did the whole thing. And he built to such an intensity by the end of the scene um, that Lumet did a really unusual thing as a director. So frequently, if you're directing, let's say you're doing an insert. Let's say I'm going to pick up this bottle. You might say to the actor, okay, let's, let's roll camera, action. The actor picks up the bottle, and the director will say, don't cut. Uh, go back to one, which means put the bottle back down and let's do it again. Okay. Okay. Don't cut. And you do it like three times because it takes every time you cut, then you have to start over and you have to say roll camera and you get a slate and all this stuff takes a long time. And you're like, this is really easy. Let's do it. But you don't normally do that with performance because you don't just start over a whole scene, but that's exactly what Sidney Lumet did. Finch gets to the end of this huge monologue, hugely intense, energy intensive monologue. And he says, don't cut back to one. Finch, let's, uh, Peter, let's start right again. And Peter Finch is shocked and stunned. You know, like, I have to, right away? I have to go start this right away? And the reason that Lumet did it is that he felt that the energy, the intensity that he had built to at the end of the scene was what he wanted at the beginning of the scene. Huh. So he didn't want him to drop his energy down. So Peter Finch gets back to the desk, immediately starts up again, gets about halfway through the, the monologue, and stops and says, I'm sorry, Sydney." I'm I'm exhausted. I can't I can't keep going. I can't do it anymore. He, he complete. It's like a sprinter had gone back. You know, he mm-hmm. did the four, you know the four hundred and then went back and got two hundred meters and went. I'm that's it. And Sydney goes, that's okay. And that's all they did. Mm-hmm. One and a half takes is all they ever did of this whole thing. What you see for the first half of the scene is the first half of take two <laughs> before he stopped, and the second half of the scene is take one. Wow. And what nobody knew at the time at all on the set was that Peter Finch had a major heart condition Mm. and that he was in fact quite sick throughout the entire shoot. And you think about this person, this brilliant actor, literally leaving it all on the court, you know, like he puts, and you could watch this performance and you could see it is everything this human has. And of course, uh, Peter Finch died slightly after making this film, you know, and, and I just think that is, that's the way to go out, you know? He just did it. He put every single thing he had into it until he had nothing more. He did one and a half takes. One of the greatest mm-hmm. speeches of all time did it one and a half times. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Did, did they have cue cards or anything of that kind? Or did Not he have to learn the whole thing? And, they learned and, the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, he's a theater actor. And they sure. had, and they had yeah. three weeks of rehearsal. So, so yeah, he, uh, they, they learned the whole thing. Yeah. Which for, you know, some of the, these are no joke speeches. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot Incredible to learn. Low. Yeah. With builds. 
But they're written so well yeah. that it's easy to remember them because you know exactly where you're going sure. and what the language is and why it's there. Yeah. Uh, we're in L.A., which is actually shot on Long Beach <laughs> um, at, a, at a building. It's all in location. They never shot anything in a studio. And we have a meeting with uh, Lorraine Hobbs, who is the African-American head of the Communist Party. <laughs> She's a great character. And we have this meeting where... Now we're going to launch the Mao Zedong Hour, and we want the liberation, whatever they are, and the great Ahmed Khan to do these series of terrorist acts. And at, and at first, Lorraine Hobbs is going, hey, the Communist Party is too respectable to deal with these, you know, hooligans. And uh, <laughs> and basically, it's like, look, you can come on the air. I'm giving you network television to say whatever you want. You just have to organize this thing. And we see how quickly the Communist Party is corrupted, too. And knows him. Oh, yeah. She totally knows the great Ahmed yeah. Khan. Oh, yeah. yeah. And she shows up. It's all to, about image. Exactly. Yep. And she shows up to the great Ahmed Khan at some safe house out in the middle of nowhere where he's eating a bucket of fried chicken. <laughs> and she says, Well, Ahmed, you ain't going to believe this. But I'm going to make a TV star out of you. Just like Archie Bunker. <laughs> What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> By the way, the great Ahmed Khan is a vegetarian. So he had to eat fried chicken all day. <laughs> I just love that you're going to this liberation army that's eating corporate fried chicken. Oh, yeah. Kentucky fried chicken. Nothing... The irony of it. It's all lies. There's no... I even, mean... the, even the revolution is bullshit. <laughs> I was just going to say, life is bullshit. Yeah, I don't right. know if you had that's gotten the news report. Yeah. It was the revolution is especially bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and now let's go see the Howard Beale show. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it. How do you feel? We're mad as hell, and we're not going to change this anymore. And things oh, have changed. This is so This great. is a big production. Ladies and gentlemen, the Network News Hour with Sybil the Soothsayer. Jim Loving, and here sits the Emma's Truth Department. We have a live studio audience and all these sort of little programs that sound totally ridiculous, except really today they're not that ridiculous. Well, and here's the deal, really. For those of you who are younger than, I don't know, 30, you have no idea of what TV was like. Variety hours were the standard. Carol yeah. Burnett. Oh, that's a great point. Carol Burnett, Dean Martin roasts. Uh, Donnie was, Marie. Donnie and... Marie. Buddy Hackett had a show. Uh, Flip I Wilson. Yeah. I love Lucy. Yeah. Lucille Ball. Flip Wilson. All these people had variety shows to try to make it work and try to be successful. There was comedy acts. Lawrence Welk did it for many, many years. Oh, yeah. And so this was, so to see something like this, you may think watching in 2019 and 2018, whenever you've seen the movie recently, like, this is so weird. That would never happen. That's a fantasy. No, this, it looks very similar to what you'd see in a, rea in a, a, a variety show. Well, and if you watch CNN, what are they constantly doing? Adding showbiz technology right. to try to make all, we have big screens with yeah. maps and holograms and all right. that stuff. The holograms coming up. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's all showbiz. Um, and it always was. And it, interestingly, Walter Cronkite uh, was famous for saying, "You know, we just give you the headlines. That's all we've got, and it's effectively a performance that we are mm -hmm. doing." I mean, he was really he understood that. I think in a, in a really important way. Uh, David Brinkley, who famous uh, anchorman for NBC said that, uh, this is in terms of the audience response to these guys, these anchor people, that he would get off the plane with a presidential candidate and he'd get a bigger hand than the candidate. Mm, right. And that concerned him. Mm. Um, and we have Howard Beale's first speech as a, you know, pretty much a latter-day mm. preacher on television yeah. um, talking about the tube. Because less than 3% of you people read books. Because less than 15% of you read newspapers. 
Because the only truth you know is what you get over this tube. Right now, there is a whole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of this tube. This tube is the gospel, the ultimate revelation. This tube can make or break presidents, popes, prime ministers. This tube is the most awesome goddamn force in the whole godless world. So whatever you t we tell you is the truth. And that is pretty scary when the 12th largest corporation in the world, which is the CCA, buys the network. Hmm. This seems really <laughs> on the money. Yeah. Like, how can you trust what you hear? And then he says, Television is not the truth. Television is a goddamn amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. That's really important. Mm. That's really the stuff. And he just goes off on it. Like, you know what you're going to see if you're in these talk. I love, I, I love, sometimes references to pop culture in movies make the movie seem dated. And for this, they're just perfect. Hmm. I love the references to Kojak and Archie Bunker and the $6 million man. <laughs> Those are just, it just, and that this is a predictable thing. You know Kojak's going to get the guy in the end. You know this is all an illusion to show you what you want to hear. We'll tell you any shit you want to hear. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So then he says, turn it off. Turn your TV off now. Turn it off. Turn it off right in the middle of my sentence. Turn it <laughs> off now. And then he faints. And this is the thing you were talking about. Yeah. There is a shot of his eyes in the moment before he faints where he is, it's clear it's fake to me. Yeah. That's what I see. He looks down before he fakes, before he faints. And, and goes like, is this the right moment to faint? Okay, I better do it now. Yeah. I totally think it's fake. I wonder. I wonder. You never see him uh, behind the scenes, like having a conversation of, here, I'm going to faint here. So right. make sure the camera comes up like this. And boy, this. the camera pushes right in on him. Yeah, and the yeah. audience erupts into a standing ovation with yeah. the producers going, stand up, stand up, stand up. Because even, even the truth teller is fake. Wow. <laughs> you uh, the, you hit it. That's a very, very powerful moment. And the idea that he did it on purpose, that he was did it in a contrived way, mm -hmm. uh, says a lot. I, hadn't, I didn't think of that, I have to tell you. I, that, that's one I think that comes from watching it over and over. Yeah, over that's, and, really, you know. that's really interesting. And we're having a board meeting with CCA, and we're in, this is actually shot, this is the long table with the green, it's perfect, green lights on this long table. This is actually the boardroom of the New York Public Library. <laughs> and we hear about how successful the Howard Beale show is, and the camera moves down the, the, the table past all the executives and finally settles on Mr. Jensen, the CEO of CCA, Ned Beatty. I totally forgot the name of this movie. When he showed up, I was like, oh. Another great name in the, uh, in, yeah. the in the annals. Yeah. Um, and we find out that uh, Ruddy, who was the CEO who had had the heart attack, maybe I didn't even mention it. You did. Uh, mm. he, uh, he has passed away, mm. and uh, 
Faye is out near the funeral hailing a cab, and who walks up on this very windy day but Max Schumacher and offers to buy her a cup of coffee, to which her response is, hell yes. And she says, oh, Howard says you're doing fine. And he says, nope. She's keeping busy. And he says, lots of funerals, friends in hospitals, occasional christenings. All my friends seem to be dying or having grandchildren. You should be a grandfather yourself about now. You have a pregnant daughter in Seattle, don't you? Any day now. My wife's out there for the occasion. And there's a reaction. I, I know we say it all the time in the cinephiles, but reaction shots are so important. And this one is like, oh, we know what we're actually talking about here. I've thought many times of calling you. I wish you had. And now, what you know what should we talk about? Sybil the soothsayer. <laughs> and that thing about the craggy middle-aged man. And she could gone to Sybil and say, hey, that never happened. And Sybil said, don't worry, you will. And we talk about that one night they spent together. And she asks, are we going to get involved, Max? And he grabs her and he turns. And with just tremendous vulnerability, I think, from an actor like William Holden, he says, Yes, I need to become involved very much. There's a lot in there, Mm. you know, a lot of pain and loneliness and loss and the end of his career and the, the lack of passion in his marriage and the near his friends dying and Howard Beale going nuts and a lot there. Cast because he had sad, sad eyes. Sad mm-hmm. eyes. Exactly right. Now we go to Diane at work, negotiating on the phone and then hanging up and heading off. And then there's this montage of scenes, which I believe if you were to remove the dialogue, this is a perfectly classically romantic montage he she runs into the car where he's waiting and kisses him passionately they are walking hand in hand on the beach they are sitting in a restaurant she has his hand on her face which she kisses repeatedly while staring lovingly in her eyes they run through the wind to the inn where they're staying hand holding hands they go sea spray in the sea spray in they run into this room they are quickly uh, undressing in a beautifully romantically lit scene they go into bed naked they make love and they lie together in the bed naked mm-hmm. so if you knew nothing else <laughs> that sounds like a classic romantic sequence from a romantic film mm. except <laughs> she is talking a mile a minute he doesn't say anything right. about network television and scheduling and development and stars and negotiations until finally achieving (laughs) orgasm while talking about the time slot. All I need is six weeks federal litigation and the Mount St. can start carrying its own time slot. (laughs) It's crazy. It is. (laughs) <laughs> he said this is the only thing she does really well yeah. is television yeah. so she found a way to, to connect it with her love life well and she had even described exactly how she was in the sack right <laughs> and now she demonstrates yeah, yeah. it seems pretty much a, and by the way I think both of their performances are really brave in this mm-hmm. scene for William Holden to be treated you know he's a big yeah. movie star yeah. and to be an accessory throughout this whole thing and not even really respected romantically in a way and then for Faye Dunaway to be naked and sexual mm-hmm. but in this completely cold and yeah. weird mm-hmm. and funny way 
It's crazy. Sequence. Well, she comes off as such a dominant, dominating mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. and he, as you say, the big movie star, is so weak, so, so weak, so, so unable to cope and with his own feelings as well as the situation. Well, you you kind of go like the wheels must be turning in his head of just yeah. like, what am I doing here? Yeah. What have I gotten myself into? Schmuck, schmuck, what are you into? Yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, uh, and now we get to meet his wife. Well, see his wife again. Yeah, yeah, we see. Yeah, we met her. This is Beecher Straight. Yeah, I'd seen this movie a lot. This scene is, I it it never wrecked me quite as much. Now, and I watch it multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, and each time I was just weeping. I mean, and maybe because I'm, I'm older, I have multiple friends who've been through divorces. I I've been married for twenty plus years. I know some of this. You know, like this mm-hmm. felt really real. Um. Another just directorial technique with uh, this scene before we get into it. So they do the scene, and they'd already rehearsed it. And in a way, this is kind of the opposite of what we heard before. And Sidney Lumet said to Beatrice Strait, let's do it again, more. And we do it again, and he goes, no, not enough. Do it more, louder, bigger. <laughs> and they do it again, more, and it keeps getting bigger. And now they're on take. Now, Sidney Lumet rarely does more than three takes, because he knows what he wants, and he gets it. He's rehearsed it, and he's very, very clear on what he wants, very efficient. Now they're on take five, they're on take six. And she's huge now. And Patty Chayefsky runs up to him and says, Sydney, this is way too big. It's way too big. It's all wrong for the scene. And Sydney says, Patty, you know comedy. I know actors. Mm. You let me do what I'm doing. And he did seven takes. He did eight takes until finally she was so exhausted from all of this stuff. And then he goes, okay, let's go again. And that's the take in the movie. And that probably won her the award. Oh, yeah. So... You know, trust your director sometimes. So, I mean, if it's sitting in the mat, it's sitting in the mat. Absolutely. Yeah. She's incredible in this film. You know, it's the one scene my girlfriend stopped and came into the the room mm-hmm. to watch. She heard it start, heard the band came in and watched it with me. And she was, the, she was, that's, in, that's, now that's an incredible scene. The hurt. Yeah. Oh. And, and you see that Max starts off with the prepared speech. Yeah. You know, kind of saying, oh, I thought it was just an infatuation. Uh, you know, I thought it was menopausal, you know, late, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And then he says, but there's no sense in saying I won't see her again because I will. And it says, would you like me to check into a hotel? And she asked the important question. Do you love her? And there's a look from him and he says, I don't know how I feel. Mm-hmm. And then he says, I'm grateful I can feel anything. And the reaction from her in that moment. Oh, the hurt. Yeah. The physical, she just goes yeah. down like she's been shot. Like, yeah. how dare you? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, like, because it's that's a condemnation of their entire of marriage. 20 and years, her, whatever it's been. Yeah. I know I'm obsessed with her. Let's say it. Don't keep telling me that you're obsessed, that you're infatuated. Say that you're in love with her. And there's a pause. I'm in love with her. And she, the, what's amazing about her performance is that it is vulnerable and painful and angry and hurt and strong and fierce and powerful all at the same time. Yeah. Because after 25 years of building a home and raising a family and all the senseless pain that we have inflicted on each other, I'm damned if I'm going to stand here and have you tell me you're in love with somebody else. And what's interesting about this whole monologue is it stays on Max. Mm -hmm. She's actually out of frame. We see her legs in the background. 
Um, and, and she kind of says, look, this isn't one of those secretaries or like girl you had after a couple of belts of booze, which means, by the way, that those existed. Right. Because this isn't a convention weekend with your secretary, is it? Or, or some board that you picked up after three belts of booze. This is your great winter romance, isn't it? Your last roar of passion before you settle into your emeritus years. Is that what's left for me? Is that my share? She gets the winter passion and I get the dotage? Woof. As as he shot her with one line, she decimates him with these. Yeah. Yeah. So we have all this uh, important social stuff we've been talking yeah. about and polit- politics and, and the... the, the uh, ironies of the economy and the way it affects uh, the news business and all that sort of stuff. And here's this just incredibly intimate human moment that is so powerful. I'm your wife, damn it! And if you can't work up a winter passion for me, the least I require is respect and allegiance. Even she's telling him, don't bullshit me. No more bullshit. I get get tears in my eyes right now just saying those lines. Yeah. At least I require is respect and allegiance. Mm -hmm. But then she says... I'm not going to give you up easy. She re- she like reverts. Yeah. She comes back to her spine. Them New York ladies, man, they're built to steal. That spine <laughs> of hers. And she just says like, I'm not going to give you up easy. This is going to be a fight. LA ladies wow. are built to steal too. No, oh, fair, fair. <laughs> well, sure. and, the, and the line after that is, I'm not going to give you up easy. Yes, I think you should check into a hotel. Right. That's fascinating too. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fight for you, but you can't stay here. Right. Which means she's maintaining her strength on some level. Mm-hmm. The other moment is that after all this speech of strength and power, she says, I hurt. <laughs> I hurt. Don't you understand that? I hurt badly. And he's standing there looking at, each, at her and she says, don't you have anything to say? And after a long, considering pause, he says, I've got nothing to say. So Karen and I stopped the movie at this point. Mm. And she Your wife, an, Karen. Your wife, my wife, Karen. Karen. Sorry. Uh, and she had an entirely different interpretation of I have nothing to say than I did. Mm-hmm. What do you think it means when he says I have nothing to say? Because nothing he says will matter in this moment. Uh, so he hugs her. That's what she wants. And that's what he, from 25 years of marriage, knowing her, or obviously more than 25 years, they were just married for 25 years. He knows exactly what she needs in this moment, and he hugs her, and he gives her that solace. Whatever he said would have meant, wouldn't have meant anything. I think he's finally admitting he's confused. Mm. He doesn't know. There yeah. isn't anything he can say. It's so funny. It's the same problem he had with trying to reconcile the mm. desire for the audience with the news right. product mm. that he wanted to produce. It's funny. Mine's similar to yours, but mine was sort of, I have nothing to say because everything you just said is true. Mm -hmm. I agree with everything. Karen said that it was a total failure on his part, that he wasn't able to articulate his, him saying I have nothing to say was saying, I don't have love for you, Mm -hmm. you know, and that I'm just, I'm too cowardly to -hmm. say anything. And so I'm just going to hug you in this sort of awkward, which it is a somewhat awkward I mean, how again, how we interpreted mm. silences and actions within a film is, you know, a really complicated thing. And it's so great. I'm so glad Karen and I stopped to talk about it because, oh, it, I, we can't know what's really going on in there. But I think I agree with Karen because it, it's once again, it's, a, it's an admission by him of his weakness and inability to deal with the circumstances that he's in. It's also a lesson for you. Don't be silent with Karen. Fair. Always speak to her. That is good advice, my friend. Um, um, And then she asks, does she love you? 
And his response is, I don't think she's capable of love, mm. which boy, from everything we've seen, yeah. that seems to be the case. And he describes her as TV generation. She grew up with Bugs Bunny. And of course, I'm TV generation by that definition. Mm. Then we go into this thing that has become a theme th throughout the rest of the film in terms of their relationship, which is describing the relationship as scripts in TV mm. terms. And again, this goes to the poetry of the movie. He says, oh My God, look at us, Louise. Here we are going through the obligatory middle of act two, scorned wife throws peccant husband out scene. But don't worry, I'll come back to you in the end. All of her plot outlines have me leaving her and coming back to you because the audience won't buy a rejection of the happy American family. It's such a weird description. And then his last line, which is just hilarious. She does have one script in which I kill myself. An adapted for television version of Anna Karenia, where she's Count Vronsky, and I'm Anna. <laughs> That's just... <laughs> and so even in uh, the heavy scenes, Patty Chayefsky is still funny. Yeah. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing. In the script, this scene comes before the non-romantic montage of the car, the beach, and the restaurant, and the sex. Mm. And then in editing, they reverse them. Yeah, smart. Huh. Which they absolutely have to, yeah. because because what would ha if you went to try to do the comedic scene with the ridiculous Diane talking work during sex scene after this yeah. heart wrenching scene, yeah. it would be terrible, mm -hmm. because that's him going like, oh, this is okay after I just you would hate Max, yeah, you it would ruin the character. So Chayefsky went along with that with obviously absolutely. He did with, with the uh, switching of the scenes. He was in the editing room and went, nope, you're totally right. Let's switch it, mm -hmm. um, and it's much much better. Yeah, I agree. Um, because then we go to another ridiculously funny scene, which is the negotiation with the great Ahmed oh, Khan. <laughs> Eating the fried chicken. <laughs> and, this is, and this is Lance Hendrickson is sitting in a blue suit, and we have a whole bunch of lawyers from management companies and network companies trying to negotiate the contracts, and they're just spewing out this language <laughs> that is just the most ridiculous legalese. Dog, fuck with my distribution costs. I'm making a lousy two fifteen per segment. I'm already deficiting twenty five grand a week with Metro. I'm paying WMRs ten percent off the top, and I'm giving this turkey ten thousand per segment. Another five for this fruit cake. And Helen, don't start no shit with me about a piece again. I'm paying Metro twenty percent for all foreign and Canadian distribution, and that's after recruitment. And out comes Walter Cronkite's daughter, who's the Patty Hearst character, with a machine gun, arguing with Lorraine Hobbs, and the great Ahmed Khan pulls a gun and fires it, scaring the crap out of our executives. And then he says, Man, give her the fucking overhead clause. <laughs> and then refers to some other thing. Page 22. Let's go back to page 22. <laughs> I just love her when she says, don't fuck with my distribution. And you're like, oh, man. This, this, she understands. Well, this is, the, I mean, the, this is the, according to the film, the corruptive nature of television and money. Um, we're at a big affiliate meeting and there's some rah-rah stuff about Diane and the shows that are coming out. And then uh, uh, Hackett gets a message and he walks off the stage, goes into some back room where somebody is watching the Howard Beale show, which has just started in the foreground. And another thing to point out is every time we see the Howard Beale show, we see it differently. So the first time we shot in a big glitzy watching the TV and we're seeing kind of the show. This time we're seeing the show, but we're seeing it on a tiny little 19-inch TV screen in the foreground while other stuff is going on with Hackett in the background. And again, this is Patty Chayefsky's greatness of 
We're, we're not going to just show you one thing. We're going to have one thing informed by another thing. And so we see Hackett taking this phone call while Howard Beale is talking about this big business deal that's going on, which is basically boils down to the Arabs are trying to buy out CCA, which is the company that owns UBS, the network that they're on, and that he wants them to stop this. And of course, Hackett is on the phone talking back east to someone who is furious about this, and he doesn't even know it's happened yet because they're on the West Coast and it's three hours later. And so he finally kind of figures out what's going on, comes over to watch the TV, realizes what's happening and that this is going to destroy his corporate life. And then we cut to our main characters in a screening room watching the final tape where Howard Beale is asking his audience to write telegrams to the White House to stop the CCA deal. And he he actually uses the same sort of syntax as he did in the I'm Mad as Hell speech. Of, I want you to get up now. No, I want you to get up now. I want you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the phone. I want you to get up from your chairs, go to the phone, get in your cars, drive into the Western Union offices in town. I want you to send a telegram to the White House. Oh my God. By midnight tonight, I want a million telegrams in the White House. I want them wading knee-deep in telegrams at the White House. I want you to get up right now and write a telegram to President Ford saying, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I don't want the banks selling my country to the Arabs. I want the CCA deal. Stop now. I want the CCA deal. Stop now. Come on. I want the CCA deal. Stop now. And this just wrecks all of our main characters in this room. Um, it's interesting to us thinking about the um, treatment of the Arabs in this scene. The Arabs are buying up America. The Saudis. The Saudis. Specifically. Yeah. Is that, but this was the feeling about the Japanese in the 80s, and this is the feeling mm-hmm. about the Chinese today. You could just substitute it out. Right. It's the same, same emotional thing. Mm-hmm. And they ask for the room, and the sort of technicians go out. And the first thing we want to find out, is this really true? Yeah, it's really true. Well, maybe Howard Beale doesn't have much power. He's like, oh, no. They've already filled the White House with telegrams. Any second that phone's going to ring and Clarence McElhaney's going to tell me Mr. Jensen wants me in his office tomorrow morning so he can personally chop my head off. Four hours ago, I was a sun god at CCA. Mr. Jensen's hand-picked golden boy, the heir apparent. Now, (laughs) I'm a man without a corporation. (laughs) And... They go, well, maybe Mr. Jensen won't care. He's like, no, no, Mr. Jensen's going to want to fire Howard Beale. And Diane's like, Why, how would he do that? Maybe unhappy, but he isn't stupid enough to withdraw the number one show in television out of peak. Two billion dollars isn't peak. That's the wrath of God. And the wrath of God wants Howard Beale fired. What for? Every other network will grab him the minute he walks out the door. He'll be back on the air for ABC sure. tomorrow, and we'll lose 20 I'm points. I'm going to pay the son of a bitch with a sharp stick through the heart. 40 million loss in revenues for the year. I got a contract. Let's not discount federal I'll action by the Justice killers. Department. If CCA no, I'll do it myself. off the air as an act of retribution, I'll strangle him with a sash cord. Duvall, apparently, this is almost all one take from him. Oh, wow. And he is like a caged tiger oh, yeah. back and forth. And it is funny and it is angry. And at the very end of the scene, what does he start talking about? I'm going to hire killers. We're going to kill him. And he goes yeah. on a big speech about killing Howard Beale which I don't think is serious. 
yet. yet. <laughs> and what the big thing he's talking about is, I know I'm going to get a phone call from Mr. Jensen that I have to show up. And of course, the phone rings. It's Mr. Jensen. And he does have to show up with Howard Beale. Right. It's the, it's the next morning. We are walking up some steps, which, by the way, is the steps of the uh, New York Library. And they go up into the boardroom, and there's Ned Beatty. And Ned says, Good morning, Mr. Beale. They tell me you're a madman. Only dizzle to relieve. How are you now? I'm as mad as a hatter. Who is it? I started as a salesman, Mr. Beale. I sold sewing machines and automobile parts, hairbrushes, and electronic equipment. They say I can sell anything. I'd like to try to sell something to you. And he brings him into the boardroom. So here's the thing about Ned Beatty. Mm-hmm. He is not the original actor. They had another guy. They had him in the rehearsals. Lamette didn't think he could do it. He was desperate. They were in the middle of shooting. He's having lunch with Robert Altman. Robert Altman says, I got the guy for you. Recommends Beatty. Beatty's hired four days before. Wow. He learned this speech on the plane. He shot the scene, the first scene in the boardroom where he says, you know, good job. Day one. This is three days after he got the script. Walks into that boardroom. He is freaked out when he sees how they want to do it. Most of what we see in this scene is take one. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Also an Academy Award nomination for one scene. And he lowers the lights and he closes the curtains and he sets the stage with Beale on one side of the long table and him on the other. And then he goes into a performance. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You think you merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. It is an old-time preacher, and the old-time preacher goes at him with a new philosophy, and the philosophy is... You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rins, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. <laughs> and I love the switch where he goes, am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? <laughs> there is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. 
This is, according, apparently, this is Patty Chayefsky's philosophy of what's really going on in the mm. world. Huh. And his performance, Beatty's performance, and you see Beale, again, very similar lighting to when he lay on the bed and was talking to God. He's in this small spotlight, looking in just rapt astonishment at this man. And then he slowly starts walking towards him. And now we've gone from a wide lens where there's a lot of size change and we really see the shape of the room into a long lens where things are compressed and becomes more and more compressed as he walks through the shadows behind each of these lights. So it becomes almost this ethereal presence sort of floating through the space, not quite visible as he goes through and talks about what the world is today. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock all necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. And Beale says, why me? And he says, because you're on television, dummy. <laughs> I have seen the face of God. You just might be right, Mr. Beale. To walk onto a movie set, deliver one monologue, and dominate like that. And here's the thing. Uh, the first movie John and I did that had Ned Beatty was Deliverance. Mm -hmm. That oh. was his first film ever. Wow, really? That's 1972. Oh. That's 72. This is 76. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Again, the guy's still working today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you look at, like, if you just take his character Deliverance, his character in yeah. Network, yeah. and then his character in Superman, Superman. Which is two years later. Which is right. two years after this. Yeah. Like, that's amazing <laughs> what this guy can do. Yeah. And again, this is, I watched that scene and I went, I want Patty Chayefsky to look at today. Because instead of AT&T and IT&T and DuPont and Dow, we have Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon hmm. as those. And, and what they are selling, it's not actually, I think, the grand society of dollars and cents. It is minutes. It is how do you sell people? That is, seems to be the question of today, that, face, that the products have become us, and Facebook and Google in particular are selling us. Once again, the prescience yeah. of... Podichievsky, you don't have to have him come in now and tell us about it. He's already done it. That's mm. a fair point. Mm. It's the next show, and Howard Beale comes out big and says, hey, you did it. You stopped this deal, and it was amazing, but guess that's it, folks, <laughs> because really there's no democracy, and he preaches this very sad, depressing thing. He says, because this is no longer a nation of independent individuals. It's a nation of some 200-odd million transistorized, deodorized, whiter-than-white, steel-belted bodies, totally unnecessary as human beings, and as replaceable as piston rods. Mm. Mm. That is rough. Yeah. And again, the way it's filmed, now the camera is behind Howard Beale, slowly circling. We don't even see his face as he sits on the stage 
laying out the most depressing <laughs> evangel in history. The time has come to say, is dehumanization such a bad word? If it's good or bad, that's what is so. The whole world is becoming humanoid, creatures that look human but aren't. And Diane is on the phone yelling at Howard's agent because the ratings are going down, according to our narrator. Um, and she, I love that she's almost standing on her bed screaming. And in walks Max, and they have an argument that is brutal and sad. Uh, and she's angry at him for having a morbid middle-aged mood, and he's tired of finding her on the phone and tired of being being an accessory, which is fascinating because you got to wonder how his wife has felt mm. for the last twenty five years. Right. You know, he's probably made her feel like an accessory. And he, I love that he's tired of writing a book about the great early days of television, and mm. that's another phrase that gets repeated. Every goddamn executive fired from a network in the last twenty years has written this dumb book about the great early years of television. And nobody wants a dumb, damn, goddamn book about the early days of television. William Holden does a really nice kick, yeah. I'd say, for a guy in his mid-60s to kick all his papers. Um, and then, man. I went to visit my wife today because she's in a state of depression. So depressed that my daughter flew all the way from Seattle to be with her. And I feel lousy about that. I feel lousy about the pain that I've caused my wife and my kids. I feel guilty and conscience-stricken and all of those things that you think sentimental, but which my generation calls simple human decency. Now he's really going to bear his soul, William Holden, that there's real primal doubts going on, real mm -hmm. fear, real sadness, and real, and he has real need, and she's the person that's supposed to love him, and she's not there for him. When they did the rehearsal, this scene did not go well. And William Holden had never done rehearsals before. And as Lumet is watching him, he goes, you know what I notice? Holden's never looking Faye Dunaway in the eye. He's always looking away. And he went, I think this scene is too true for him. It's too much what he's experiencing in his life. So instead of continuing to rehearse, what Lumet does is he stops rehearsal. He said, that's good. Let's stop. We'll get it on the day. On the day... They got the cameras all set up and he goes up to Bill Holden and he says, Bill, whatever you do, you cannot, you have to look Faye Dunaway in the eye the whole scene. You cannot look away. And he goes to Faye Dunaway and she says, whatever you do, you have to look Bill in the eye the whole scene. And suddenly all of that truth that he felt William Holden had been hiding from, all of that truth he was really feeling poured out in this mm. speech. And that thing that you mentioned too about his sad eyes, yeah. boy. Mm. In this scene, it's right. The vulnerability, you never expect an actor like William Holden to show this. And boy, he does. Because I'm beginning to get scared shitless. Because all of a sudden, it's closer to the end than it is the beginning. And death is suddenly a perceptible thing to me with definable features. You're dealing with a man that has primal doubts, Diana. And you've got to cope with it. I'm not some guy discussing male menopause on the Barbara Walters show. I'm the man that you presumably love. I'm part of your life. I live here. I'm real. You can't switch to another station. The great ones when they age are even more magical to watch because there's so much weight to their words. Sinatra with his singing as he got older, mm. after the two alleged attempted suicides, the loss of Ava Gardner, 
the songs as, as he starts to lose people in his life, the songs, the melancholy of the reprise years at the end. There's so much mm. in that as men or as humans to devour and teach you things. Uh, Olivier, after the loss of like the confidence as an actor that he later mm. in life to come back in the mid seventies himself and have his renaissance as an actor when he speaks about acting in such a different way than he did before when he was writing the arrogance of his talent. It's incredible to see that. I always find that to be fascinating as I get older to come back to those things and see those things in a whole new light than I did when I was in my twenties. And so I the actor is the actor's life experience. Exactly. It's that you're seeing in through. the performance. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the key to art. Sure. The key things yeah. to art is that if you need to tap into some truth within yourself in order to bring truth to the screen. Yeah. And and the thing he says to her is so desperate and so painful is is she asks him, what exactly is it you want me to do? And he says, I just want you to love me. I just want you to love me, primal doubts and all. He says, you understand that, don't you? And there is a reaction from Faye Dunaway. And... By the way, there was supposed to be more in this scene. There was more dialogue. And she says, I don't know how to do that. And the phone rings. The phone. Mm. And she answers it. There are phones you should not answer in relationships, <laughs> by the way. And she answers it and she says, I'll, I'll be with you in a minute, Matt. Mm-hmm. <sighs> See? And that is a great callback. Because remember when Max and her first starting in together, she picks up the phone, makes the call to end the the hanging out with whatever yes. guy, so yes. she can be with Max. At this, she's like, uh, "Max, you have to wait." I thought about that. That's, yeah, that's yeah. A totally it's, great point. It's, it's, yeah. The phone now totally is more point. important than he is. And uh, now we're back at work, and Lorraine Hobbs is mad because Howard Beale used to be a good lead-in, and now yeah. it's not a good lead-in. <laughs> and we're down in some screening room, and she's looking for replacement preachers, and none of them are going to work. And we get into this question of, you know, we're either gonna, we're not going to replace Howard Beale. We're either going to keep him or we're going to go without him, and keeping him is a bad idea. And they're meeting with uh, Hackett and going, look, we should dump Howard Beale. That's, you know, I got audience research that says that the – you know, Lorraine Hobbs and the Vox Populi and the Sybil, they're all going to do okay. They've got good followings. We just got to dump him. But Mr. Jensen, Ned Beatty, he's taken a liking to Howard Beale. And Hackett goes, look, I'm going to go meet with him. I'm going to, I'm going to try my best and get him to dump him. Cause I agree with you. And let's, and I love that he says, is 10 o'clock convenient for everyone? And he just walks out the door. <laughs> he doesn't actually wait for an answer to the question. And Diane comes back home and finds Max asleep and she goes upstairs, and this is where the lighting has become extremely dramatic. We're not in realism at all anymore. Mm. It is to- like so. Realism exists is that if you have a light source in a room, then even though you're hanging all sorts of uh, artificial lights, if there's a window or there's a light, then you're matching the light coming from those places. We're not doing that anymore. The light is coming in pools of light to light dramatically what we want to light, regardless of what the light sources in the rooms are. And we're upstairs, and she is packing Max's bag. Time has come to reevaluate our relationship, Max. So I see. And again, we go back to the script. I don't like the way this script of ours is turning out. It's turning into a seedy little drama. Middle-aged man leaves wife and family for young heartless woman, goes to pot. The Blue Angel with Marlena Dietrich and Amy Yarnings. I, I don't like it. So you're going to cancel the show? And finally, he takes over doing the luggage, and she apologizes, I guess, for some of the fights last night. I love, she says, Sorry for all those things I said to you last night. You're not the worst fuck I've ever had. Believe me, I've had worse. 
And his line is so funny. Again, it's the humor in the midst of drama. He says, Why is it that a woman always thinks that the most savage thing she can say to a man is to impugn his coxmanship? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a great line. (laughs) Um, And... I mean, I wonder, has makes anyone... Your, makes your face red, doesn't it? Has any, <laughs> anyone in the history of the universe ever used the term impugn his coxmanship before Patty Chayefsky came up know, with this? I mean, I'm going to use it from now on. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and we're downstairs, and he says, I knew this was over over a week ago. Will you go back to your wife? I'll give it a try, but I don't think she'll jump at it. And then he says he's concerned about her because she's not a boozer, which means she's just going to crack or jump out of mm-hmm. her window. And as he says this, she goes into the kitchen and takes out a cup and a saucer to make herself some coffee or tea. And her hand is shaking. And then there's this force of will she uses to put it down and get herself back together. So I was looking through the script. And as I said, Patty Chayefsky also has beautiful descriptions. And I wanted to read this to you because it is literally exactly what's on the screen. She fetches a cup and saucer from the cupboard and would make some instant coffee, but she is overtaken by a curious little spasm. Her hand holding the cup and saucer is shaking so much she has to put them down. With a visible effort, she pulls herself together. That is Mm. exactly what we see on the screen. And then because of her effort to pull it together, she comes at him screaming. I don't want your pain. I don't want your menopause and decay and death. I don't need you, Mark. You now get need out of me. You need me badly because I'm your last contact with human reality. I love you. And that painful, decaying love is the only thing between you and the shrieking nothingness you live the rest of the day. And don't leave me. She blurts out this honest, emotional moment. And don't leave. She almost yeah. stops herself from finishing the sentence yeah. because she's One being time. so honest. Yeah. Well, and this they're is where yeah. Sidney Lumet says she has no vulnerability. It's like, yeah. no, she does. She does. In that moment, she yeah. does. And then he says, You're one of Howard's humanoids. And if I stay with you, I'll be destroyed. Like Howard Beale was destroyed. Like Lorraine Hobbs was destroyed. Like everything that you and the institution of television touch is destroyed. And then this speech, man, you're going to rip a person up when you dump them. Check this out. Your television incarnate, Diana, indifferent to suffering, insensitive to joy. All of life is reduced to the common rubble of banality. War, murder, death. All the same to you as bottles of beer. And the daily business of life is a corrupt comedy. You even shatter the sensations of time and space into split seconds and instant replays. You're madness, Diana. Virulent madness. And everything you touch dies with you. Mm. Wow. And he says, but not me, not as long as I can feel pleasure and pain and love. And he kisses her. And there's a great reaction from her as he goes away. Um, And again, we go back to the script. And it's a happy ending. Wayward husband comes to his senses, returns to his wife, with whom he's established a long and sustaining love. Heartless young woman left alone in her arctic desolation. Music up with a swell. Final commercial. And here are a few scenes from next week's show. (laughs) This is poetry. Like, we've totally... 
abandoned any kind of realistic way of speaking. We're speaking in perfectly metaphorical poetic terms, using the mechanism of television, which is what the whole thing is about, to describe the emotions of the characters. And Holden delivers that. Ah. Oh, yeah. So powerfully. We're at our final meeting. Again, lighting incredibly dramatic. Everyone in their pools of light. Nobody moves in this scene. And we hear that Mr. Jensen doesn't want him fired. He likes him. Mr. Jensen feels we're too catastrophic in our thinking. I argued that television was a volatile industry in which success and failure were determined week by week. Mr. Jensen said he did not like volatile industries and suggested with a certain sinister silkiness that volatility in business usually reflected bad management. <laughs> which is just like an executive would say. <laughs> I would describe his position on this as inflexible. Where does that put us, Diana? That puts us in the shithouse. That's where that puts us. And then there's a discussion of ratings and how much ratings means in terms of money. And this is going to cost this, you know, $45 million a year or whatever it is. You guys want to hear all the flack I'm getting from the affiliates? We know all about it, Herb. And you would describe Mr. Jensen's position on Beale as inflexible? Intractable and adamantine. And then the other white-haired guy, whose name I don't remember, says, So what do we do about this Beale son of a bitch? And Frank Hackett, with almost no emotion, says, I suppose we'll have to kill him. What's amazing about this moment is there is a a pause. Mm -hmm. And there is no reaction. Mm -hmm. And then he turns to Diane and says, I don't suppose you have any ideas on that, Diana. Well... What would you fellas say to an assassination? I think I can get the Mao Zedong people to kill Beale for us. It's one of their shows. Kill the lead in. And kill, yeah. <laughs> and what's amazing to me about it is that that means she's already thought about this. Oh, yeah. This is not a new thought. It could be done right on camera in the studio. We ought to get a fantastic look in audience with the assassination of Howard Beale as our opening show. And she talks about the audience and they could make it the big kickoff of the season um, and we'll do it right on camera. And then the only question is, well, what do we owe Beale for his contract? And apparently his contract was based on last year's ratings, so it's probably not going to be very much. And now we cut, and this is totally bizarre in terms of filmmaking, in the midst of this scene, for no particular reason, we just suddenly cut to people walking into what we, we will find out is the Howard Beale show. Just a crowd of ordinary people walking through a lobby. And we start to hear about syndication rights and other network stuff. And there's one guy who says, jokingly, I hope you don't have any hidden tape recorders in this office, Frank. <laughs> a little, little Nixon reference. A little bit of Watergate reference. <laughs> and there's one moment where one of the guys says, We're talking about a capital crime here. And we think in this moment that he's going to offer the moral objection that mm-hmm. we assume someone's got to say, holy shit, what are you talking about? And then he just says... The network can't be implicated. So, oh, there's not going to be any moral objection here. And Frank says, Well, the issue is, shall we kill Howard Beale or not? I'd like to hear some more opinions on that. Look, I don't see we have any option, Frank. Let's kill the son of a bitch. And then we cut to... The opening of the show, and it's the Howard Beale show, and all the fanfare, and we introduce all our characters. And starring the mad prophet of the airways... And then the music is swelling and Howard Beale is walking forward and then the music stops and he is about to speak and in a silence that is just long enough to be awkward, 
the great Ahmed Khan and the members of his force open fire and Howard Beale drops dead. And what does the camera do? Pans in close. Pushes in yeah. just like it did on every other episode when yeah. he falls down. They know what to do. Yeah. It's a formula. Absolutely. And then we go into the same kind of quads lit that we opened the show, um, where at the beginning we saw the four anchors of the major networks. And now we see the news of the assassination of Howard Beale going by. And also playing on these is some nice commercials mm-hmm. for an airline, the Mikey He Likes It commercial yeah, for Life Serial. And we hear a little bit of information that the great Ahmed Khan escaped and the camera pushes in on Howard Beale left all alone. And we hear the narrator say, this was the story of Howard Beale, the first known instance of a man who was killed because he had lousy rating. (laughs) (laughs) And there's lots of talking and a teletype. And that is the end of our film. Yeah. And I love that ending moment because it shows you the truth is that, We'll be shocked for a few seconds, but then a commercial will come on or something will distract us. And then eventually we move on to the next thing in the news cycle, which now is so rapid, which at that time in the 70s would last for a few days. Now is literally sometimes within the day something takes the place and we move on from what we thought. Within the moment. I mean, it's coming so fast. And we also, I keep saying this, I don't know if we want to be political about it, but... Mm. Uh, President Trump is a guy who knows how to manipulate he's the, the best. system. He's a genius. Nobody's ever been able to do I don't know, I don't know like if he's that. a conscious genius or uh, that's a good unconscious question. Yeah. genius. Yeah. But he's his, like Howard Beale. Is yeah. he true? Yeah. Is he, does he know what he's I, doing? I don't about? know. Yeah. But his ability to change the story or refocus right. attention on something else yeah. is is amazing. Almost minute by minute. It's just extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and, and, and what he does, and much like some of the things, is that the more extreme he makes it, the less we're able to focus on it because he does yeah. an extreme thing and we go, oh my God. Yeah. And just when we start to focus on that, something else. Mm. And we forget the policy implications, the yeah. Yeah. the consequences down the road to what the ultimate outcome of whatever it is he's saying might be. The, the, there's a moment I was, I was a poli-sci major in, in school and I remember there's a moment from Eisenhower that I always think about, which is that they really didn't want him. There was something they didn't want the news to get a hold of or make a story on. And they said, well, what are you going to do when they ask you this question? And he said, well, I'm just going to confuse them with such crazy, terrible grammar that by the end, they'll have no idea what I was saying. <laughs> and they'll just move on. And he gets on and he says something like, well, it's uh, number one, you have to do this, but B, and I love that just going from one to B. And then he goes off on just a completely... Wow. And people talked about whether he, in fact, had been affected by his heart attack in such mm. a way that he was not it's the wicked. same guy that he used to be. Wow. Yeah. Um, the movie gets somewhat of a mixed reception. So critically, there are some people said this is the greatest thing ever, and other people found it self-indulgent, preachy, self-righteous, scattered. Of course. Um, you know, which is, you know, to be expected. Sure. It was nominated for 10 Oscars, um, including editing, best picture, directing, cinematography, and he won four. And it just... This is a crazy year for Oscars. Mm. So for Best Picture, which it did not win, the nominations are Rocky, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, and Taxi Driver. Wow. I mean, that is a remarkable... With the exception of Bound for Glory, which is a movie I've never seen, those are... uh, We've done every single other one of those Mm. on The Cinephiles. Mm -hmm. Those are... Which isn't... That's not the ultimate standard for (laughs) the movie. (laughs) But but Taxi Driver, All the President's Men, and Rocky are fantastic films. For actor, it's... uh, Peter Finch, who was nominated posthumously, Robert De Niro for Taxi Driver, William Holden uh, for this. So both actors are nominated, and mm. Sylvester Stallone. 
and Finch wins. Uh, supporting actor is Jason Robards for Presence Man, Burgess Meredith for Rocky, Rocky yeah. uh, Lawrence Olivier for Marathon Man, yeah. and Burt Young for Rocky as well. Mm. And Jason Robards wins. But these are like remarkable categories. Yeah. Uh, uh, Faye Dunaway also won. Beatrice Strait also won. Uh, it did not win director or picture. Um, and the WGA ranks network as one of the top 10 greatest screenplays ever written. And there's currently a stage ad- adaptation starring um, Brian Cranston, Brian Cranston, yes. which my mom saw in New York. And I think you were at a reading of it early yeah, on. There was a reading of it in, uh, at, the, uh, in, at LACMA. Mm. Not all that long ago, and uh, I was the narrator. Oh, that's great. Uh, that's great. That's great. Um, we're at the point where we normally give our final thoughts. Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, this film resonated with me seeing it recently because of everything that's going on in the world. I said at the beginning, but it is a film that needs to be uh, revisited by anybody who listens to it, who maybe you've uh, haven't thought about it in a while, or maybe you 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 were like, oh, it's you know, it, it didn't affect me that much. I guarantee you, if you go back and watch it now, it'll have a lot to say to you. And depending on where you are in your life now, it'll have a lot to say to you about what you want to do, where you want to go. And maybe the bullshit that you're done dealing with in the world will be highlighted by what Howard Beale's talking about. But also what the film shows you is uh, just because you're done with bullshit doesn't mean the bullshit is done with you. <laughs> and I think that's a really important thing to think about. And uh, really focus on Ned Beatty's speech here because that is what we're moving into, where we are really becoming just numbers on a piece of paper. The individuality and the idea of us as a group and, and as a as a force in the world is starting to be taken away more and more by corporations as they employ us, make us apathetic, and take away our inability to get uh, angry anymore and cause change. Uh, this is what... Uh, Ned Beatty's character is talking about as he does that whole speech to Howard near the end there saying that it's not about nations or 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 uh, peoples anymore it's about corporations and pretty soon uh, as we see corporations do deals with nations that do some pretty despicable stuff you realize it is all about the money and I wonder if there's an ending point and it certainly doesn't feel like there is one when you come out of this movie from 1976 or when you walk out into the world in 2019 so for me, most of the time when we go to movies, we're doing exactly what Howard Beale says that we're doing, which is that they are in the entertainment business, mm. business, the boredom killing business. And you know what? Having been around people making movies for a while now, that's a tough business. It's actually hard to make an entertaining film. But every once in a while, a film comes along, which actually is in the deep truth business, not the you know, lowercase T truth, but the capital T truth, a truth that through its language and through its ideas is there to make you think, to make you reexamine the way the world works. And Howard Beale saying that he's mad as hell, Howard Beale talking about bullshit, Diane breaking down what is on TV, them going through their lives as scripts, our description of humans becoming humanoids, the descriptions of Ned Beatty, that the world has become a place without nations or democracies or peoples or ideologies, but a place that is run by dollars and cents and what the meaning of our life is becomes into somewhat sharper focus the more you think about the movie of network Mm. and the poetry of it the language of it the passion of it and the drive to tell this story that is unusual and profound from the mind of patty chayefsky makes this one of the most unique and special movies for me uh in the history of film when i first saw this movie in 1976 
Uh, it really was revelatory to me in a way. It brought home to me what I had been doing as a television uh, person. And I stayed in the television business for some time after that, television news uh, business such as it was, uh, and sort of saw myself living out um, or experiencing some of the things that I'd seen in the film. For example, uh, I went to work for a station and I was told that uh, I would be the uh, credibility guy and that they'd never make me do anything that would embarrass me. And they never did. And I had at one point done this long uh, story about Tom Bradley and his long years as the mayor of Los Angeles, and he was about to run again. And, you know, what what was it, what was that all about? And it was quite a long piece for its time, you know, eight or ten minutes, something like that, which was practically endless. And it was scheduled to go on a particular show. And that day in Los Angeles, we had one of the uh, deluges that uh, L.A. is on for some reason, not all that famous for, but we have them from time to time. And there was a rock on the top of a ridge uh, someplace in Orange or San Diego County, and geologists looked at it and said, this rock's going to go. It's going to come rolling down the hill. And it was the top of a hill, and in front of it, uh, on the Pacific Coast Highway, was a row of houses. So everybody started to send their cameras down, to this scene. And we would come back, we would hear, there it is, it's going to come down. And we're, and we're going to, well, we'd always promise before right. going to the commercial, we're going to be there live yeah. when this thing happens. On and on this went, starting out at about one o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. And my long piece, you know, culmination of my career as a political reporter is supposed to run. And we get into the news cycle and it's not coming up, you know, when it was supposed to come up. And we're back again, the same thing, over and over again. Right. It's much more important to watch a rock to rolling a rock. down a hill. Yeah. So uh, time goes on, and I'm thinking, you know, this is going to be on the 11 o'clock news if I'm lucky. And all of a sudden, I look up at the uh, monitor, and it b- breaks loose. Hmm. And it comes bounding down the hill. It's the size of a Volkswagen. Disappears behind one of the houses and bursts out of the front of the house. Wow! And there's, uh, you know, wires and and uh, glass and uh, pieces of concrete and so on. It bounces into the road and across the street and into the into the uh, water. And sort of at one moment, we all realized that ours had been the only station that was on live. And the voice of our news director came over the loudspeaker saying, "God." wants Eyewitness News to be number one. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I said, um, what I saw in 1976, I then saw being replicated again and again and again and again. And uh, what you say about... And, and the other thing that occurs to me is the role of the media in creating the situation that we are in today right. with this uh, uncertainty about what our values are and uh, are we, in fact, what Ned Beatty described us as being. Yeah. It's a very important message. Agreed. So that is what we think about network. As always, we want to hear what you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page, do a search for The Cinephiles. You can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash The Cinephiles, where you can suggest a movie or listen to our Cinephiles shorts. Visit cinephiles.net to buy every movie that we've ever uh, <laughs> talked about. Um, and as always, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris and Instagram at SR Morris one John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And as I said, the top 10 and and 
both Geek Buddies, the, the Geek Buddies, those are all available on the other uh, uh, streaming platforms for podcasts. So go and listen to those two completely different podcasts than the Cinephiles, but uh, a lot of fun to do. Uh, so there you go. And um, Warren, uh, people want to find uh, To The Point is still available as a podcast. It certainly is. It went on as a broadcast, started out as a broadcast in 1980, uh, went along with uh, Which Way L.A., and then we discontinued both of those after quite a long time. And uh, now we're doing To The Point as a podcast. We're doing two of them a week. We do one uh, on a particular subject that's of interest uh, in the news, and then we also have a climate change update that we're doing on a weekly basis, which has gotten a lot of audience, oh, wow. and uh, and it's uh, it's doing very well. You can find it at uh, wherever you get podcasts, of course, and uh, also directly at kcrw.com slash to the point. You can get me at warren.olney at kcrw.org, and I'd love to hear from you. Um Thank you so much for coming you, on the Warren. show. This has been such a, a lot. pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles for another great film. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.